You can't handle the truth. Just when I think you couldn't possibly be any dumber, you go and do something like this. And totally redeem yourself! <laughs> You're gonna need a bigger boat. Get away from her, you bitch! The first rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club. To infinity and beyond! Hey, and welcome to episode 66 of the Samuel and Manuel Movie Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Sam Reimer. And I'm Manny Manuel. And I'm Rachel Corp. Rachel, it's good to have you back. Thank you for Thanks making for an appearance. Me. It is going to be a big one today. As soon as we released the schedule, you hopped on this one like right away, didn't you? I did. I really <laughs> wanted this one. <laughs> yeah, today we're talking about our top five favorite Quentin Tarantino movies in honor of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood coming out next week. Manny, are you as excited as we are? Super excited. Super excited. <laughs> and I, I believe we mentioned this last week, but when we were planning out this podcast, like, what is it, a year and a half ago now, when we were first talking about what this movie podcast would look like before we even hit record the, for the first time, this was an idea that I wanted to do. I wanted to do our top five Tarantino movies, and yeah. we're finally getting to do it. We, and we've been doing this for a year and a half, and this has been planned for how many months? And Sam, did you watch all of Quentin Tarantino's films? Of course I didn't. <laughs> I did I did okay. You know, he, uh, he has uh, nine released as of this point, although he counts uh, Kill Bill as one. He counts Kill Bill 1 and 2 as one movie, and we'll get to that. So all, all that considered, I watched uh, six of eight this week. It's pretty good, I think. Must have must have been really hard to whittle it down to five. <laughs> Fuck out of here. <laughs> so I welcome, got a life too, Manny. Yeah, welcome back, Rachel. So glad to have you. Thanks for having me. So excited to be here again. Excellent. So, what have you been up to? What have you been watching? What's going on in your life? Well, um, a couple weeks ago, one of our dear friends got married, so I was at his wedding, Shawnee's wedding. And recently I've been watching, I've been on a bit of a horror kick, so I went to the theater to see Us, Ma, and the Pet Cemetery remake. Uh, what was, this, what was the second film? Ma, with Olivia, Octavia. Oh, Mama. No, right? it's just Ma. Is it? Oh, shit, for yeah. some reason I thought it was Mama. Never heard of it. Oh, with Octavia Spencer? Yeah, and... she's like this creepy older lady who lets kids party in her basement but then she does fucked up shit to them all right okay and how were those three films uh us is awesome it is really good i've been Ma, i've been trying to i've been trying to convince manny to watch us i know he's not a horror movie guy but us is really fucking incredible yeah it really is and it it sticks with you like it haunts you afterwards like, yeah. I was fucked up for like a good week after that movie. Oh, well, that sounds like fun. Let's it. do that. Yeah. <laughs> did, did you like That's it more? Did you, did you like it more or less than Get Out? Less than Get Out. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. Less than Get Out, but it didn't stop me. Like, I was trying to talk to anybody at work about it. For It's it's so good. Pet Cemetery, the remake was meh. Have you seen and the, did Mal you see the original? Right? Have you Pardon? seen the original Pet Cemetery? Yes, seen the original. Okay. I've read the book. Yeah. And the remakes, meh. You knew the trailer spoiled it. You knew what like kind of the wow moment was supposed to be. Meh. 
It was, but it was okay. So good. Uh, on television right now, I'm rewatching Bob's Burgers for like the eighth time. <laughs> I, I actually recently, uh, I haven't done a full watch of Bob's Burgers, but a couple of my friends convinced me to watch it. It's a pretty funny show. Never seen it's an episode. It's so good. Oh, it's so funny. And the more you watch it, the more, the, like, the better every episode gets. Are they taking it off? They're taking it off Netflix, right? No. I didn't know that. <laughs> I think they are, yeah. I might Google that, but, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure they're taking Bob's Burgers off Netflix. Damn it. It's, like, it's my go-to for background TV shows when I'm working from home and I just want something on TV. It's my go-to for late-night TV. It's my go-to after I've drank a bottle of wine and I can't take anything seriously. Like I watch it. It's literally my go-to for everything. Oh, yeah. The article I'm looking at right now says they were... Did, did they not take it off this year, January 1st, 2019? <gasps> no. How have you been watching Where? it? Maybe I haven't been watching it since January. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to out it's you on the, air. No, you can totally out me. <laughs> I was like, it's the most recent TV show I've been watching. Yeah. No, but it's off Netflix now. I have been watching it since January. How the time flies, so, hey? Look at me lying. <laughs> No kidding. Wow. I'll give you a minute to process that information. I can't believe it's been since January. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm a liar. I haven't watched it since January. (laughs) (laughs) I I at least hope the horror movies were more recent than that. They must have been. Yeah, they were just in the last couple (laughs) months. I haven't been watching a lot of television television. So maybe that's why I'm thinking. We we asked you what you'd been up to since you were last on the show, and it's definitely been since (laughs) then, right? So you're you're the best No, I was on... I was on at the end of January. Oh, shit. I was about to say you're the best kind of correct, technically correct, but I guess you're you're <laughs> not. <laughs> nope, way off. Well, so I have not been watching television or <laughs> putting any, watching any Bob's Burgers. Just been focusing on Tarantino, right? Yes. <laughs> Did you get to rewatch all eight of his films? No, I only managed to watch four and a half. Fair and enough. I'm counting Kill Bill as one. Yes. Yeah. Since he's counting it as one, that's what we'll be counting it as. Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, I'm super excited to have you back on, Rach. And I'm really looking forward to uh, to getting into this list. But there's two things that I want to talk about before we get into Tarantino. And the first one is the abomination that's going to be hitting theaters in, uh, I think, November. And that's the film Cats. Now, the trailer dropped a little while ago, and it's fucking disturbing. I've, I've yet to see it, but the internet's been going a little crazy over it. The internet's yeah. been having a field day with it. Yeah, so we're going to try something uh, that we've never done before on the Sam Emanuel podcast. We're, uh, we're going to subject Sam to watching the Cats trailer live on air. Yeah. And we're going to get his reaction as he watches it, and then we're going to have a little discussion afterwards. So we're going to get things set up here, and we'll be ready to go in a moment's notice. All right, here we go. Sam's going to talk to us as he watches the trailer for Cats. Here we go. I already don't like this. I know, right? All right, here we go. 
Okay, so a bunch of shots of a cobblestone road, and oh my goodness, terrible look at that person. One night. I've never, I have no idea what the it's about. No idea. It, it's about cats, Sam. Oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Clear some things up. I haven't seen you before. Okay, Judy Dench doesn't look too bad. Yeah, I mean, she looks like Judy Dench. But look at, like, this is creepy as shit. This is creepy. I, I really don't like this. This is some uncanny valley shit. Okay, there's some... I, I don't even know how to describe this scene. Who's the lead of this? I don't know. And I don't mean to be like... There's a bunch of... There's a bunch of vague shots. I think that's... God, James Corden. Jason Derulo. Okay, apparently this is 2009. Oh, they got Ian McKellen? Taylor Swift. Holy shit, this is like a lot of my... A lot of people I don't like, plus Ian McKellen. This looks so weird. It looks atrocious. I think I would just be repeating myself at this point every shot. Oh boy. Oh man, it's creepy. Cats. Alright, Sam. What'd you think of the Cats trailer? Okay, having absolutely no prior knowledge about Cats or what it is or... You know what it's about, or very little, I guess I should say. I don't know what the fuck I just saw. It seems uh, the animation's a little creepy. Like it's all kind a, of in the uncanny valley. A little creepy? Yeah, it's pretty creepy. That's a fucking <laughs> horror film. Yeah. <laughs> Rachel, you're awfully yeah. silent. Um. So, as somebody who grew up with Cats and does know what it's about, and has every song almost memorized and can play them on the piano. Uh, I, I'm into it, man. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's a little creepy, and it takes a little bit of getting used to that it's like humans acting like cats, but I am all in. Okay. I can't wait. I can't wait for it. So to give you a brief, it's about a group of cats, and they're called the Jellicles, and every year one cat gets chosen to go to the heavy side layer, which is kind of like heaven, and be reborn. And the musical is about, you learn all of their individual separate stories of right. these cats. And then in the end, one does get chosen, and that's what it's about. All right. I mean, hey, I, I have not seen the play. I am unfamiliar with it. I cannot judge it based on the merit of its storytelling. I can't do that. What I can judge it on is the appearances of these characters, and it really just gives me the willies to yeah. look at Judy Dench. What about and... that cast, though? 
The cat. I honestly not. A, I'm. I'm not. A, I'm not a huge James Corden guy. I'm not a huge Rebel Wilson person. Um, I can't even remember. Ian McKellen's gonna be awesome. Jennifer. Jennifer Hudson. Not a fan. No. I'm not a huge fan of her. I'm a little disappointed that she gets the song yeah. in Cats memory, but. Okay, I mean, I so what, what's love. what's the rest of this cast that you're super excited about? Uh, I just Elba, okay. I'm excited that's about. That's one. Um, but I'm not saying I'm excited about it. I'm just saying that's a pretty star-studded cast. <laughs> Isn't it? I mean, sure. Uh, and, yes, technically, for like yes. Known, like, for likability, known ability, like, a lot of people will know quite a few people in this movie. Taylor Swift is in it. Asses are asses are going to be in the seats for sure, and it's like yeah. Taylor Swift is going to attract a younger audience to this, a hundred percent. But there was for... this there was this movie, and I'm gonna I'm gonna list you the cast. There was I a... know what movie you're going to say. N- no, you don't. There was this guy. His name's Matt Damon, and there no. was uh, George Clooney, and Bill Murray, and geez, who else was in that movie? Hold on, let me just double check uh, on who else was in it. Um... Uh, let's see here. So we had George Clooney, Matt Damon, Bill Murray. Uh, oh, Kate Blanchett, John Goodman. Uh, they had Jean Desjardins, Bob Balaban. That's the people in this film. Does that sound like an amazing movie? Yeah. Yeah, it's called The Monuments Men. <laughs> so what's your point? Yeah. Doesn't mean that they have a great cast that it's going to be a good fucking movie. That movie oh. fucking blew. But that's not what I said. I didn't say it was going to be a great movie because that is a great cast. I so said you're bragging that there's a bunch of really well-known cast. people in a movie? That's fantastic. <laughs> but that's all I said. I didn't say it was going to be great. I just said there's a lot of well-known people in it. That's not a plus for a movie. <laughs> it, it is. I mean, but and... it, to make money, it will be. We're not talking about money. Until word of say, until, until word of mouth gets out. It will put talk- people in the seats. <laughs> We're talking about... If- <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What are you laughing about? <laughs> We're talking about how fucking creepy it looks. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And But you're telling me that that's it's fine to be creepy because there's famous people in it. No, no, I, don't think, I, I don't think that's what saying, she's saying. Yeah, I'm not saying anything is fine or that it's going to be great. I'm just saying there's quite a few well-known people in it. That's it. That's the point. That's all I said. That's all. That's that's the point. Is that there's there's well-known people in this movie. That's well, yeah. a point. Man, it, Isn't that the point wrong, of every movie? Wrong, there's nothing wrong with pointing out that the cast is interesting or intriguing. I mean, yeah. it means nothing about the quality of the movie. I agree with you. You can on that. say you can say that for almost every movie. No. Yeah. I just watched a movie. It had Uma Thurman, Vivica Fox, oh. Michael Madsen. It's a good movie. David Carradine. Who else was in that movie? That's a great cast. That's a great cast. That's a plus for the movie because it had a great cast. You're telling me that when you see that Tom Hanks is going to be in a new movie, you don't immediately go, okay, I want to go see that. I'm. That's exactly what I'm telling you. Really? Yes. Really? Yes, uh, Tom I Hanks is not a person that like. Or it, okay, like who's your who's your favorite actor working in Hollywood? Da- Daniel Day Lewis. You tell me when Daniel Day Lewis has a new movie coming out, you don't go, "Oh, Daniel Day Lewis has a new project. I want to go see that." And why do I want to go see Daniel Day Lewis? Because he's a good actor. Okay, so who in the cast of Cats is <laughs> along those lines? Who who on planet Earth <laughs> is along those lines? Daniel That's not the point. He just compared them to Daniel Day Lewis. I. 
Yeah, I'm comparing Rebel Wilson to Daniel Day-Lewis, man. That's you got what me. you're getting across. You got me. I you're... think they're on the same level acting wise. Your head on your ass. What <laughs> you're the fuck are you talking about? You were just you. I just said that a movie can't have a plus just because it has a cast. But I didn't say you don't it think, was a you don't plus. Think... I just listed a fact. <laughs> Okay, let's put it I'll, this way. I'll tell you, you what. Hey, here, 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 here's a here's a news flash for you, Rach. Every movie has a cast. Oh my god. Oh my god, Manny. It's not a plus. You just said I was just stating it had a cast. I'm with you. I know you. because you're presenting it as an argument that I'm saying it's going to be good because of the cast, and I'm just simply stating it has one. <laughs> Every one movie well has a cast. Oh my god. <laughs> yes, the animation's pretty creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. I I know that you like musicals. I know that you like the movie. I like. I know you like the play cats, and I know that you have an affinity for Tom Hooper because he did Le, Les Mis, which is your all-time favorite. One of yes. I but I honestly can't understand how you could see that trailer and say, "Oh my God, this is going to be good." Okay, so that's what this is all more about. Is that I've looked at this trailer and said I want to go see this. I understand Versus wanting to see something you have an affinity for, which is going to lead perfectly into the next thing that we're going to talk about. What about? Uh, let me ask you this, Rachel. Seeing sure. that trailer, what leads you to believe that this is going to be anything but an atrocity? I don't. What a question. <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly don't know. I don't know if I can answer that. All I know is that. I'm interested in watching it and I will likely go to the theater to see it because for me, it's all nostalgia there. It's like something that's important to me growing up. Perfect. So I'll go. Perfect. That leads right into what I want to go into next, which is <laughs> the ranking. You're setting me up, man. I'm not setting you up. <laughs> I'm not setting you up. I, I know. I know. It doesn't even matter. They could have come out. Oh, like I can't even think of something. I honestly, I was gonna try and think of something that would be worse, but there's nothing worse because that look, they're fucking creepy as shit. I was there's say, one that's worse. There's one that there's a worse movie out there. <laughs> a worse looking rendition of cats. Of a cat woman. <laughs> Are you talking about the movie Catwoman? Yeah, with Halle Berry, that is a worst cat thing. Okay. Worst on-screen portrayal of a cat. Of a cat, yeah. <laughs> or I think didn't Kevin Spacey have some like some movie where he literally played a guy who turned into a cat? Nine Lives. Yeah, I think that's what it was called. Nine Lives. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, honey. Go ahead. No, no, it's, it's totally fine. It's exactly <laughs> what I'm getting into, which leads into the next thing I want to talk about, which is The Lion King. Now, neither of you have seen it, and for those of you listening. Guess what? I'm going to spoil The Lion King. Uh, it's over 20 years old. So, uh, <laughs> I'm actually surprised that you haven't gone to see it yet, Rach. I'm, I'm actually stunned. I am too. It's, it's only because I had to work overnights last week that I couldn't get to it. Now, off air, Sam, you said that the original Lion King means a lot to you. Yes. When you saw the trailers for this... When when they announced they were remaking it, did you have any interest in going to see it? Um, I'm uh, kind of, I guess. I mean, 
A, the title. I mean, that's the whole point of this, isn't it? It's just like, okay, well, we have this property that's huge, it's massive, let's remake it and make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Call it The Lion King again, make a bazillion dollars, and that's what they're going to do. I am. So, yes, I would be lying to you if I said the fact that I saw the words The Lion King on my screen, I, I would be lying to you if I said that didn't initially make me want to go see this movie, but, like, I don't know. Disney keeps pumping out these live-action remakes like they're... I don't know, like, they're supposed to be even close to the originals. I mean, I went and saw the live-action Jungle Book and thought it was okay. I I didn't think it was, you know, fantastic. I didn't think it was terrible. But there's all these, like, uh, like Snow White remakes. Disney's basically going into their bag and saying, like, how much money can we make from all these properties that we already own? And it just kind of feels soulless to me. It just feels like this this movie has no reason to exist. Like when I went and saw the Jungle Book, I didn't think, "Wow, what a what a creative new twist they've put on this," or "Or wow, I'd never really thought about the Jungle Book from this perspective before." It's it's just a live action version of the same movie. Like I I don't know how bad they want to give Disney my dollars for that. You know. Fair enough, Rachel. I will give Disney all my dollars for that. <laughs> I love the Jungle Book. I actually think it was my number my number one that year. You're fucking kidding me. No. Holy not. shitballs. I have to look, go back and look what else and back and see my list. But it was up there. It was definitely in my top three that year. I'm, I'm honestly flabbergasted at that statement. <laughs> I loved it. Wow. Wow. I I gotta process this one. I'm scared to say that Lion King is was actually one of my most anticipated for this year. I believe that. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. Okay. All right. Okay. Thanks. Like, hey, I'm not I'm not saying by the way, I'm not saying that I hope this movie's going to be bad or anything like that. Like, no. obviously not. Like I if this movie's good, you know, I'll eat my hat. But you know, I just Disney doesn't exactly have a great track record of reinventing the wheel. Like they, they're not going to take risks with one of the most beloved animated movies of all time. They're they're going to make a shot for shot remake. That's my prediction. Like, and I think for people people like me, when it comes to these movies, that's exactly what I want. They added a scene into Beauty and the Beast that angered me so mm-hmm. badly. Which is and weird. Like, what you're, is you're... this doing in here? I just want. I want take for take, line for line, the same. And and even to use the Jungle Book as an example, in, in the movie, the live action movie, um, King Louis' song doesn't really make a lot of sense in that movie because, so the Bare Necessities is more like a mantra, like a daily mantra. The song that Ka sings is to hypnotize. So King Louis' song doesn't, it just doesn't seem to make sense in the movie. But if that song had not been in the movie, I would have been mad. I don't know if that, does that make sense? Kind of, yeah. I mean, like, it's it's tough, because I, I do know what you're saying. Like, th- this is why I don't think that rebooting Disney properties is a good idea, because there there is an in, there's a not insignificant number of people out there who do just want, like, the same thing, which I, I can't say I'm among that crowd at I all. I am but, 100% not in that crowd. Because the thing is, if, like, I, I can already watch The Lion King at home and not pay dollars to see it. Like, it, you know, I... I I own the Lion King. I can just, if I want the same thing, I'll just watch it. I, I don't know if I need to go spend $20 on a 3D ticket 
and then another $20 on a popcorn and a drink to, to go see this movie that I already own, you know? I also own The Lion King, and if the cartoon was playing in the movie theater, <laughs> I would also pay to go see that in the movie theater. That's a fair point, Again. actually. That's a fair point. <laughs> but I will save $20 on popcorn because I don't like it. So. Man, you're looking flabbergasted. Okay. He's getting well, ready to destroy me. Yeah. Again. Okay. No. Okay. <laughs> well, don't say anything about the cast. Yeah. Yeah, I will not say anything about that. Oh. Will be the cast too. Yeah, I I know. His face, his face is just so annoyed. <laughs> For those of you that right, didn't guys, listen, Beauty and the Beast was my most hated film of that year. All right. Now, Rachel, you mentioned that, and this is what flabbergasted me. And and I'm 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 honestly looking for an answer. You said you want the exact same thing. So why do you want a copy of something already? Like what you 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 just want them to redo the exact same thing again? For what reason? I don't think I'm gonna have a very good or a satisfying answer for you. I just like it. I just like them. I, I'm entertained by them. I love those cartoons, Lion King, all of them. And I love seeing them in live action. None of them are better than the cartoon, but I really enjoy watching them. And that's all it is. Just enjoyment. Okay, that's, I, that, I have a good time. That is the when perfect the theater, answer. I'm so happy. I'm singing the songs again. I'm listening to them. I just like, I just like that they're doing it again. Okay, that that is a perfect answer. That's completely okay. <laughs> fine. I just for for me, I I'm of the opinion like if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I'm trying to think of, I'm trying to think of some an animated film from my childhood that I would like to see in live action, and there's nothing, nothing. They were fine the way they are. I have no desire to see a live action animated version of anything. That being said, I am now getting the live-action versions of the comic books that I read as a child. I'm getting the live-action versions. you had versions. never seen those on the big screen before. Like, any any superhero movies from that universe, pre, let's say, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies, were just, like, not good. Especially from Marvel. Somewhat. Somewhat. I had Blade, which was good. I yep. had the late 70s Superman 1 and 2. They were good. But yeah, for the majority, they were pretty bad. So I can understand that, Rachel, because I, I love the Marvel films because I'm seeing my childhood and everything on screen. Sam, you're right. I didn't have something to see. They're not redoing something that was done in the childhood. I, and let me get this straight. I hear people ranting and talking all the time. Why did they do it? Um, because this is a capitalist country. There is a simple reason why they do this. They make a shit ton of money. Yeah. A shit ton of money. Once they stop making money, Disney will stop doing it. That's not going to mm-hmm. happen because people are going for the exact reason you just said, Rachel. They're going for the nostalgia. But for me, again, and I, 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 I'm not spoiling anything because I'm, <laughs> I actually, I honestly, anybody over the age of 15... I don't think I've met any one of them that has not seen The Lion King. I don't know anybody that has not seen that movie. Mm-hmm. So if you're one of the one 
0.001% of the world that hasn't seen Lion King, about to spoil it, there's your chance. I was not a Lion King fan as when Lion King came out, I would have been 18, 17, 18, 19, around there roughly. Came out in 94, if I'm not mistaken. So I would have been 18 or 19. I didn't hate The Lion King. I just didn't think it was the great film that everyone that saw it did. I was in the minority on my opinion of Lion King. It was fine. I was entertained. I didn't think it was that great. I was more of an Aladdin guy. Aladdin's really good. Watching The Lion King in 2019, I understand what they were going for. And basically their idea was it's basically like watching the Planet Earth films set in this movie. They're, they, the, I cannot even express how amazing this film is visually. The technology that they've done here is going to open the doors for a plethora of possibilities for filmmakers in the future. I just witnessed something. Like if you thought the photorealism in Jungle Book was good, be prepared to be wowed. Yay. This is the the this movie looks so great. A wish of mine, which will never be able to come true, is I would love to take this film, go back to the sixties and show it to somebody that has no idea about digital filmmaking or anything like that, and they would be like, How did you teach lions how to talk? Because <laughs> it looks fantastic. Correct me if I'm wrong, this sounds like praise. When when's the bad stuff coming? Yeah. <laughs> Like waiting for it to drop. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's coming. <laughs> it's absolutely stunning. And knowing that none of this is real. It, they didn't even do plate shots. So all the background, digital. Everything is digital. But when they start singing, this movie lacks heart and soul. There's no emotion for me in this movie. Again, granted, I don't have the emotional connection to the first one. But one of the things about standard animation is that your characters, whether they be human or animal or even an inanimate object, they can emote. They have expressions. There are no expressions on these animals save one. Anger. That's the only thing that they can emote. When a lion roars or something is angry, it is easily shown. But everything else is not. You can't, I get no sense of joy, no sense of anything from any of these animals because they look real. You can't see it. Their eyes look dead. It was difficult to watch, and I didn't get excited at all watching any of it. I mean, when, when lions emote, that, that's when you get something like the trailer for cats, though. <laughs> no, when lions, when lions emote in an animated film, you get something like The Lion King. <laughs> that's interesting. I'm trying to think back if The Jungle Book was like that. Take a look. I mean, The Jungle Book at least had a human lead, though. Yes. Yeah. Right? And he can emote. So there was emotion. But in this... Except for when the lions are roaring, there's nothing on their face. Also, you have, you have a movie, and I'll state this flat out. I'm not a Beyonce fan. 
I'm not a hater, but I'm not a fan. You're you're not not a part of the beehive. Is if are you fucking? Is that seriously what her fans are fucking called? Yeah, she's Queen Bee, man. Yes. Yeah. Queen Bee. Holy fuck. Okay. <laughs> no. We are, we already talked about your music taste on the show last week, Manny. Yes. I'm not disputing her talent. But you have. She's no weird Al. Uh, fucking right. So. <laughs> I un- like she is an incredible performer, but I'm not sure how much you guys remember that the majority of the movie, like the vast majority of the movie, is told when Simba's a cub. Yes. So you have Beyonce who plays the adult Nala. She has maybe five minutes of screen time. Really. Like, Think about how much screen time Nala had when they grow up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does she speak seven lines? Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Right? It's not a lot. I was like, what a yeah. waste of talent. Yeah. Well, I mean, they probably couldn't afford more than seven lines for fucking Beyonce. <laughs> probably. The other thing as well, and this confounded me about the original, but like they, <laughs> they want... When Nala discovers Simba and she tells him to come back, she wants him to come back to defeat his uncle to take over Pride Rock and become king. Yeah. We've seen Simba in two fights prior to this, both to Nala, and he loses both times. Why doesn't she just fucking kick his ass? Yeah. <laughs> just, Girl power movie. Yeah. Just yeah. a minor thing. Okay, so... Like I said, I, I, I found it lacked. In, and here, here's something that w- could never be quantified. But I, I, this is how I honestly feel. If the original Lion King didn't exist, and this was the version that they made first, so the only version of Lion King was the one that was made this year, I don't believe that this would resonate with people as much as the original does, just because of the lack of emotion and soul that I feel this movie lacks. Visually stunning. I'll leave on that part, so I'll make it a shit sandwich. I started with a compliment, threw my criticism in the middle. I'm going to end great. The reason to go see this movie alone is for Timon and Pumbaa. <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, it's Seth Rogen, right? Seth Rogen and Bill Ehrlichson or something like that. I can't remember his real name. The movie once... Uh- Billy Billy Eichner is Billy Timon Eichner, and Seth Rogen is you. Pumbaa. I don't know who Billy Eichner is, but he crushes Nathan Lane. This Timon is the reason to go see this movie. And while I'm not a Seth Rogen fan, he is fantastic as Pumbaa. They uh, steal. I'm currently currently looking up Billy Eichner. Yeah. Uh, you may- you may know him from uh, such classics as The Penguins of Madagascar, uh, The Angry Birds Movie, Neighbors 2, Sorority Rising. So yeah, pretty uh, pretty star-studded on there. Yeah, I haven't um, seen any of those. <laughs> unsurprisingly. Um, Although I will say this, that The Penguins of Madagascar in the Madagascar film were one of the yeah. highlights. I fucking love those guys. Uh, Parks and Rec is what most people would know him from. Gotcha. That's like 17 episodes. Haven't and then uh, nine episodes of Bob's Burgers. I haven't seen it. Hey, that is on air. What was that? I watched recently. Yes, <laughs> recently. So Timon and Pum- 
Timon and Pumbaa are worth going to see this movie for alone. Yeah. And I'll, I can tell you this, Billy Eichner can sing his ass off. Huh. So I, I didn't hate The Lion King, but I don't feel it comes anywhere near what the original does. Whereas, like, like I loved Aladdin, the original, and the remake, I was pleasantly surprised. My only problem with the remake of Aladdin is that Will Smith is not Robin Williams. Like, and it's not even close. Which nobody is. No, they're not. It was. It's such an iconic role. I was hoping that he might be able to do something different with it. He wasn't. So, so speaking of emotion, with Aladdin, um, I remember in the cartoon I watched. I think it was probably in the special features where they talked about how they make carpet have feelings and mm-hmm. how they show his emotions mm-hmm. did that transfer over sure did did he have feelings in the live action sure did yeah uh-huh. yep it's the same way that they they did they it was it shouldn't be that hard no in my opinion in my opinion because of it was it's the same as the cape in dr strange yeah <clears throat> it's on, on- Honestly, my go-to examples for inanimate objects emoting are the cape from Doctor Strange, like you said, Manny, and and Wally. Wally's a yeah. robot who doesn't have a mouth, and he shows more emotion than half the humans in live-action movies. Well, well said. Yeah, that's a great example. Again, I know that they couldn't do the emotion that I guess I was looking for because they wanted this to be photorealistic. But on this, like they wanted these. But lines. it's at a cost. Yeah, it, it is at a cost, and that and that's the trade off they went for. And for and for me personally, it didn't work out. So I'm hoping, like a friend of mine, shout out to you, Mushhead, who I know is not listening, anyways. She loved it, and I I kind of wish I had gone there to watch it with her because I would have liked to have seen her reactions. The most of the time, I was just sitting there, like I was kind of more watching my daughter watch it them watching it how did maya like it maya liked it but she likes the cartoon better wow smart girl i know i know (laughs) but i it was like i said it's i'll be if if you guys well when when you go see it rachel let me know i will Uh, hopefully hopefully you don't feel the same as i do because like i said i i was not i didn't hate the lion king and I, like I said, I know why they made it. It's all about the money. And it made a shit ton of money. I think it made already a half a billion dollars worldwide. So more coming. But I just, it, it just, I didn't feel the emotions at all. And that was the trade-off I guess they went for. So on, on my end, they succeeded. But I just, I just felt it lacked the heart and the fun and the joy of the original. But but for people where The Lion King means a lot to them, just the fact seeing it on screen, hearing those songs sung again is probably going to be good enough for them to love it. Where yeah, for, I'll be interested. Like, knowing that you've said that now, I, I will probably watch for it a little bit more. But I, I, I don't think you will. But again, I'm like that person. Seeing it, hearing the songs is going to mean everything. <laughs> uh so you, you mentioned that uh, I don't want to spend too much more time on Lion King. We've talked about it a lot. But yeah. you did mention, yeah. I'm just kind of curious, does Beyonce have a song then if she's on screen for five minutes? 
Well, she does the duet of Can You Feel the Love Tonight? Right, of course. Right. Yeah. I, which, was, I was trying to rack my brain for... Which they, uh, uh, they completely botch. Really? <laughs> who's, uh, who's adult yes. singer? Is it, is it, Donald uh, Glover. It is Donald Glover? Okay. He's, I think he's a pretty talented uh, musician, but I know more of his rap stuff. I think he can sing as well, though, can't he? Let he me, must, let, must be able to. Let me quantify what I mean by botch. I don't mean okay. that they do a horrible rendition of the song. Mm-hmm. But this is not Elton John. Well, like, come on, who is? But it's it. I don't mean the sound of the song. Their singing of it sounds great. Mm. But the purpose of this song and the montage that goes along with it is that these two are reconnecting and falling in love. I didn't feel it. And if did you did not feel the love tonight, did not feel the love tonight at right. all. <laughs> but also, what led to that is if you remember the original. Which I do. Right? The montage, they're doing a bunch of things together, and it ends at night. Correct? Something romantic. Yes, I, I would see that. This all takes place at about 10 a.m. in the morning. There's no... Doesn't make any sense. I know. <laughs> it's... There's no night shots with them. There's nothing romantic about it at all. Now, the singing, Donald Glover and Beyonce singing the song, it's fantastic. But as I'm watching on screen, I'm like, I, I'm not picking up any connection here. Mm. That's me and my opinion. Hopefully, you guys think differently. And you'd be like, Manny, I don't know you're talking about. You're a heartless bastard. <laughs> I, I know for a fact that you're not a heartless bastard because we every movie we talk about you talk about how you cry at it yeah and that <laughs> and that's and let's get well let's just t- well, let's talk about the big scene the most emotional part of the of, of the lion king long live the king long live the king and then the following uh <clears throat> the him uh going up and trying to wake his dad up yeah sure. nothing felt <laughs> nothing and i'm a father wow. Did you cry at the original? No. I guess you, you said you were 18 when, it, when the original came out. You're probably too cool. Oh, no. I, I cried back cry. then, too, bud. <laughs> I was never I never too cool to cry. Every time. Okay, that's awesome. So, Rachel, when you go see it, I want to know if you cry. Yeah, that's the, I that's cry the... every time I watch it. And I am actually nervous about that scene. Because right. you're going to sob in the middle of a the theater? Yeah, which I don't mind. Like, it happens frequently but it's just like i just like watching it and just having my heart ripped out every time so we'll see i guess all right that'll be the measurement right there all right <laughs> okay we have spent uh, more time on this than i originally anticipated so we should yeah move my on. goodness apologies in advance for the three-hour episode everyone yeah right okay <laughs> so we are gonna dive into our top five quentin tarantino films now, before we get started, there's a couple things that we'll remind viewers of. Sam, do you want to do that? Yeah, sure. So uh, we are going to be covering our top five Tarantino movies. As Manny said, we're going to be listing them uh, in ascending order from five to one. We're going to get our lovely guest to go first. So Rachel's going to list off her number five movie and then Manny his, my, and then mine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, if somebody has theirs listed at higher, like let's say uh, Rachel's number five is, I don't know, Kill Bill. And then one of us goes, oh, I actually have Kill Bill at a higher number. We will discuss it at the higher number. We'll skip over to the next person. 
Perfect. Also, uh, Kill Bill is one movie for our purposes. Uh, Quentin Tarantino does consider Kill Bill one and two to be one movie, so we are going to uh, we are going to consider it as such. Excellent. So before we start our list here, we have a couple predictions. Rachel, why don't you start us off? You uh, said you had a couple predictions for the show. Why don't you uh, share them with our listeners, and we'll see if they turn out to be true at the end of the show. Okay, uh, so I, as a listener, these ones are pretty easy, but I predict that Manny's number one will be Pulp Fiction, and that Sam's number one will be Inglorious Bastards. Wow. wow. Bold. Bold. That's I, a bold statement. Bold. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. I know I've been outed as a liar and chewed out <laughs> over past already this show, so let's just see what happens. Thanks for coming on, Rachel. We appreciate <laughs> yeah. it. For the last time ever, you're welcome. Wait, liar? Where did we? Just where did the kidding, line come from? I love it. I love it. Uh, when when she said uh, she'd been watching Bob's Burgers recently, and I uh, yeah. oh, right. out <laughs> off Netflix. For now, recently was six months ago. <laughs> I six forgot about that part. Still technically true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my other prediction was I do not think Jackie Brown will be on anybody's list. Okay. No, you had another film you said wouldn't be on anybody's list. And now I'm not so sure, but I thought Death Proof wouldn't be on anyone's list either. You can't, you can't say... I'll, take, I'll, I'll put it down. Okay. Death Proof also won't be. Death Proof and Jackie Brown will not be on anybody's list. Yeah. Now, Sam, before I list off my predictions, um, why don't you share with our listeners uh, which films of Tarantino's you did not see? Uh, okay, so uh, completely unrelated to what it was that Rachel just said. This week, I did not have time to watch Jackie Brown and Death Proof. <laughs> and you've never seen either one of those before, have you? I, I prioritized the ones that I knew would be on my list and that I'd seen before. Fair enough. Fair enough. Are you, uh, are you willing to make any predictions heading into... Honestly, I, I, have, I have jotted down right here predictions. Uh, nobody chooses Death Proof or Jackie Brown. And uh, Manny chooses Pulp Fiction as number one. Other than that, I have no idea how this is going to go. Nice. Are you gonna randomly pull out your hat? What do you think Rachel's number one is? I I honestly don't know. I'm. I know you don't. I know you don't know her very well, but we'll, we'll all make predictions. Just pull one out of the air. Uh, I'm gonna go with. Hold on, I got the list of all of them right here. Uh, let's try. I think Django. Let's go Django. All right. Wicked. Okay. Um. All right. Here's my predictions. Um. My prediction is that. Uh, Sam's number one will be Inglorious Bastards. You two are way off. And I'm going to echo Sam's prediction. I think Rachel's number one is going to be Django Unchained. Okay. My other prediction, and this is the other prediction I have, is that The Hateful Eight doesn't appear on anybody's list. Interesting. That is my prediction. Now, the okay. other thing as well that we didn't include, and I was actually almost going to put it on my list just to throw a curveball, is that Quentin Tarantino actually has another film that he directed. It's the anthology film Four Rooms. Oh, yeah. Which he directed one of the rooms in. I love that movie and was almost going to put it on my list just to be a little brat. I have not seen it. It is. Sam, it's definitely worth a watch. Huh. Definitely worth a watch. It's called Four Rooms? It's called Four Rooms. Not even really aware of it, honestly. Yeah, it's it's... It's a lot of fun. Huh. And the movie okay. Four, Four Rooms, it's set in a hotel, I think, on New Year's Eve. 
and it's four it it's about four different rooms in this hotel and each room has a different director and the only through line between all four rooms is that Tim Roth p- plays the bellhop <laughs> and so he appears in all four stories but each each room is directed by a different director i don't remember who two of the directors are but quentin quentin tarantino and robert rodriguez are two of the directors i they, know they're they must be good they must be good buddies hey they're really good buddies they met yeah. well they met um in 92 uh, on the festival circuit because tarantino had reservoir dogs and robert rodriguez was uh touring around with el mariachi yeah, and then they did. Uh, well, from dusk till dawn is Rodriguez directed and Tarantino written, right? Co co he co wrote it with Rob Rodriguez, right? And you can see where the difference is. The, <laughs> the first half is written by Tarantino. The second half is written by Rob yeah. Rodriguez, <laughs> which is painfully yeah. obvious if you watch the movie. Yeah. By the way, uh, this really doesn't have anything to do with anything. Uh, I, two things I wanted to say before we get going here. Yeah. Number one, uh, I think I've told you this maybe on air. I'm not sure, Manny. Uh, but I actually saw Tim Roth. Uh, <laughs> this is just a random Tim Roth story that I have. I was going to a, a, a comedy show, a comedian by the name of Jim Jeffries, really funny Australian comedian. And uh, randomly, at the beginning of the show, he just comes out and says, I have a friend that just wants to come out on stage and say hey. And Tim Roth came out on stage just plastered, like slurring, stumbling, basically on his ass. The, the guy was absolutely wasted, and he said a couple of slurred swear words into the mic and then went off stage and then Jim Jeffries just said, how fucking weird was that? I, he just came into my dressing room and said that he wanted to go on stage with me. That's my Tim Roth story. That's- and the only other thing only other thing I wanted to say is that uh, I wanted to reveal this on air. Manny saw it already, but I am wearing my, my Pulp Fiction shirt uh, in honor of the, of the show tonight. Motherfucker. <laughs> All right. So I think we're good. Rachel, do you want to say anything before we start heading off here? No, I'm ready to go. All right. So, Rachel, as our guest, you have the leadoff spot. Rachel, what is your uh, number? Do you, oh, you want to oh, just uh, – where you are going to be spoiling these movies. Oh, thank I think you. We should be, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're going to be spoiling the shit out of these movies. Yeah. Um, Rachel, what's your number five, Quentin Tarantino? Coming in at number film? five, I have Reservoir Dogs. I, too, have that on my list ranked higher than five. I also have it ranked higher than five. All right, so we're going to move on to my turn. Manny's number five Quentin Tarantino film, blowing predictions out of the water, Death Proof. Whoa! Uh, you could probably guess not on my list, Rachel. I'm going to assume uh, same thing. Not on my list. Yep. <laughs> Manny, be prepared to talk a lot by yourself for this one. Uh, <laughs> maybe I'll just go uh, grab another coffee or something. Sure. Um, <laughs> Death Proof, uh, hold on, right over here, right over here, oh, damn it, one second, Death Proof, all right, uh, Death Proof, the plot is two separate sets of voluptuous women are stalked at different times by a scarred stuntman who uses his Death Proof cars to execute his murderous plans. This came out in 2007 is actually part of a fun little thing that Tarantino and his good buddy Robert Rodriguez did called Grindhouse, where they did uh, they paid an homage to old Grindhouse films from the 60s and 70s of having a double feature of kind of really bad exploitation films. Uh, Robert Rodriguez's was a zombie horror film called Planet Terror, and then this was Tarantino's entry called Death Proof. 
Um, starring Kurt Russell, Zoe Bell, Rosario Dawson, and a bunch of other uh, really kind of voluptuous hot chicks. I love this movie for the simple fact that at the time, the stunt work was unlike anything I'd seen in over 20 years. The car chase scene is one of the best car chase scenes I have ever seen. And Zoe Bell is a revelation, and I wish she would do more stuff. This was her first real acting gig, as she was the stunt double for Uma Thurman in the Kill Bill films. And Tarantino liked her so much that he said he was going to write her into his next movie. And she thought it was just going to be a small little maybe one or two line speaking part. And so he called her up and said, I'm going to come over and read the script with you. And she's like, why would he come over here to read a script with me if I have a... And she starts going through the script and she keeps seeing her name over and over and over again. And she was just gobsmacked. And she is so charming in this movie. And the fact that she's obviously doing her own stunts because she is a stunt woman is astounding as they are flying down these dirt roads on the back hills, Sam, doing about 70 miles per hour, which I think is about, what is that, about 110, 120 kilometers an hour? Something like that. She's on the hood of the car the whole time. And these cars are crashing into one another. It is absolutely amazing. And it's not all the stunts you can see. Like, the camera pulls back. It's not like it's a close-up of her on the hood and the car's stationary. They pull back and you see the cars driving on this road, hitting one another while she is on the hood. It is so much fun. The first half of the movie is one set of women and it's pure Quentin dialogue. Them talking about nothing important, but you're transfixed at the conversations. The soundtrack is spectacular, especially the lap dance scene with a song called Down in Mexico. It's, I fucking fell in love with that song, as I do with pretty much every time Tarantino makes a movie. He introduces me to some piece of music I'd never heard, and I instantly fall in love with it. Um, Kurt Russell as stuntman Mike, you can see that this man is having an absolute blast playing this role just having a shit ton of fun um i guess that's probably all i really have to say i got i do have a whole bunch of fucking trivia notes i guess i should probably get them out because we'll probably never talk about this movie again um (laughs) sam hasn't yeah sam hasn't seen it rach what were you i know you hadn't seen it in a while but what were your thoughts on death proof uh it's been so long um i remember liking it i I just don't remember it being memorable, I guess. I but I remember I had I enjoyed it. I like Rosario Dawson's in it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um I did like it. I just Yeah, it didn't make my list. Did you I haven't seen it in a long time. Did you see it as the double feature as Grindhouse or did you see because in if you if you saw it in the theater, if you saw Grindhouse as a double feature both versions of Planet Terror and Grindhouse were actually, or sorry, not Grindhouse, Planet Terror and Death Proof were actually shortened. Yeah, I did not. I didn't see it in theaters. Okay, so you saw it like at, on home video or whatever. Yeah. Okay, so you saw the extended version. Okay, perfect. Okay, awesome. Okay, I'll I'll fly through my trivia notes. Go ahead, Sam. 
Uh, I was just going to say, if if I want to try to piss you off, I guess I'll tell you that I've seen the other half of Grindhouse. Holy I've seen fuck, Planet- you see Planet Terror? I've seen Planet Terror, but I have not you seen uh, Death Proof. Dick! <laughs> yeah, my uh, I, a friend of mine growing up, Ian. Hi, Ian. You're not listening, I know. Um, he's, a, he's a big zombie movie fan, or was a big zombie movie fan back in the day, at least. And uh, I went over to his place, and we watched uh, we watched Planet Terror. Terrible movie. <laughs> right? Oh, and that's actually... <laughs> so bad. Oh, that, and that's actually one of the things I wanted to point out with Death Proof, is Death Proof is, is made purposely to look bad. There are bad cuts, bad edits. There are times where you can see a couple times, you'll see, the, like, the mic boom. You'll see some of the crew at times. It's all done on purpose, and the fact that he does this bad on purpose and still makes a great film is a fucking revelation on the amazing band that is Quentin Tarantino. One of the one of the few things I remember about Planet Terror, other than it's about a chick fighting zombies with a machine gun for a leg, is uh, is that there's a moment in it where the where the reel is just missing. Like we're in the middle of a plot, we're in the middle of a yep. zombie battle, <laughs> and then there's just like a notification that comes up on screen that's like reel missing, please stand by. And then the movie comes back on and we've like several characters have died. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought that was the funniest thing ever. Oh, this like watching this in the theater was so much fun. Especially if you're like if you're a film fan and you knew that Robert Rodriguez and Tarantino were purposely making bad movies. And that's what made it fun. Being in the theater watching other people that didn't know this was even more enjoyable. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll zip through some of these, uh, these little trivia facts about Death Proof. Um, this is actually the only Quentin Tarantino movie that takes place completely in chronological order and without flashbacks. Ooh, interesting. Oh, that is interesting. Um, Mickey Rourke, Sylvester Stallone, Ving Rhames, Kurt Russell, and an Australian actor named John Jarrett were all considered for the role of stuntman Mike. Um, the sheriff and his number one son discussing the crash while walking down the hall of the hospital in Death Proof are the same two, sheriff and number one son, in Kill Bill that go to the church massacre. It's also the same, it's also the same sheriff from the movie From Dusk Till Dawn. And I'm pretty sure that this sheriff and the number one son are also in Planet Terror. Damn. Uh, the act. The act. Oh God, damn it! It's gonna bug me. Uh, the actor's name is Michael Parks, uh, and he is fantastic. I love this character. It's he's <laughs> he's only got like one scene in each film, but I fucking love him. And uh, Tarantino is even doing uh, connected movie universes before the MCU was a thing. Yep. So was Kevin Smith. Yep. So was Kevin Smith. Um, the yellow Mustang from the second segment is labeled Little Pussy Wagon, a reference to the <laughs> Pussy Wagon in Kill Bill Volume 1. Nice. Um, oh, and if you remember the character Jasper from Kill Bill, that's the guy that's trying to fuck the bride while she's in a right. coma? Yeah. He's in this movie. At, named Jasper. Yeah, it's a, it's the same actor. It's, huh. a, it's the same character. That's fine. <laughs> um, when Kurt Russell's stuntman Mike looks into the camera with a smile before getting into a Chevy Nova, it's an homage to what Burt Reynolds would do in several movies involving fast cars. Um, at one point, Pam, played by Rose McGowan, calls the other girls double fucks. This came from an incident on the Planet Terror set where Rose was trying to get in character for the scene where her character wakes up and realizes her leg has been torn off by zombies. 
but Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez kept peeking into the room and teasing her as she tried to get appropriately emotional. Annoyed, she called them double fucks and told them to get out, and Quentin liked it so much that he added it to his script. Such <laughs> uh, a Tarantino thing to do. Yeah. So that's my number five, Death hey. Proof. Sam, what's your number five Quentin Tarantino movie? Number five Quentin Tarantino movie is actually two movies, but we're going to be counting it as one, as previously mentioned. That is Kill Bills 1 and 2. Uh, that's on my list, and it's ranked higher than number five. Number five? That's no, ranked Wait, hi- it, it higher. Also oh, sorry. I, th- I thought you said right it's ranked number five. I'm like, that's impossible. <laughs> it's also uh, on sorry, your Rachel, list, Rachel? Rachel. You said it's, it's higher on yours too, Rachel? Yeah. Okay. All uh, right. All right. So, Rachel. What is your number four Quentin Tarantino movie? Coming in at number four for me is Inglorious Bastards. Uh, hold on, let me let me check my notes real quick here. I want to see if I have that. Uh, that uh, Inglorious Bastards. Uh, oh yeah, no, I do have that higher actually. So we should probably talk about that. <laughs> okay, at a later yeah, number. it made my list too. I have it ranked higher than number four. Woo! All right, all right, my turn. Uh, number four for Quentin Tarantino is his film debut, Reservoir Dogs. I also have this on my list, also at number four. Rachel, is it on your list? Yeah, it was number five for me. All right, so here we go. Since you were you had it listed at number five, Rachel, why don't you start us off on your thoughts on Reservoir Dogs? So Reservoir Dogs was my second introduction to Quentin. I watched Pulp Fiction first, and mm-hmm. I didn't quite know about Reservoir Dogs. So after falling in love with Pulp Fiction, I went back and watched Reservoir Dogs. I love this movie. I think right from the opening credits... Um, where they're walking and little green bag is playing. I just feel like, you know, you're going to, you're about to watch a really fucking cool movie about cool guys doing bad shit. And then the next thing is just like, bam, Tim Roth is covered in blood in the back seat. And then the movie just takes off from there. Yeah. yeah I, w- <laughs> <laughs> I would agree with just about all of that. I think that, yeah, the, I agree. The cut to Tim Roth uh, bleeding in the backseat of the car right after the opening conversation is like, if we consider the conversation about like, like a virgin, a a prologue, then like that being the first scene that's moving the plot forward is just such a good opening. It's attention grabbing right off the bat. It's uh, him bleeding and begging not to die in the backseat just instantly grabs your attention, which Tarantino, by the way, Knows how to do so well. Oh my god! The openings yes. of all of his of all of his movies are so good. Um, but I mean, even before that, I mean, come on, uh, the like a virgin conversation. He gives he gives all the best lines to himself in this conversation. But <laughs> his rant about like a virgin being about a girl who likes big dicks is hilarious to me. Uh, <laughs> I, there's, I have something sorry. on that. Okay, sure. Uh, Madonna, who is the main topic of the opening conversation, really liked the film. But refuted Quentin Tarantino's interpretation of her song, Like a Virgin. She gave him a copy of her erotica album, Signed. And inside it said, to Quentin, it's not about dick. It's about love. Madonna. Aww. Aww. (laughs) That's surprisingly wholesome. I I will say that besides that, I mean, Madonna has sort of uh, remained in the public eye since, uh, since 92. This came out in 92, right? Correct. 
yeah, so she sort of remained like in the in the cultural zeitgeist, but a lot of the other pulp, uh, excuse me, the pop culture references uh, kind of fall sh- fall short in this movie. That's like one of the only shortcomings I can find in this movie is that as someone who was born after after this movie came out, a lot of the pulp culture references kind of go over my head. Besides the Madonna one, fair enough. Um, Rachel, like you, this was actually my second. Um, film I'd seen by Tarantino. Uh, I was introduced to him by Pulp Fiction, uh, which changed my life. So it wasn't short. It was very shortly after seeing Pulp Fiction that I raced out and watched Reservoir Dogs. Um, this Sam, this is a the mid the early like the '90s were a year I kind of wish that you were of your age right now, as yeah. film was completely changing with independent film. It was such a magical time to be a film fan. Um, the things going on, the way the film was being changed by companies like Miramax and New Line Cinema and uh, uh, Fox Searchlight, all these little independent films companies buying up all these great films made by these amazing young talent was such a joy to behold. And again, it's all this is all pre-internet, so you had to find out through word of mouth or from if you were lucky you had people that worked at your at your blockbuster or wherever you rented them that actually knew something about film and not about movies i know that sounds pretentious but go fuck yourself this is it was such a treat and it was so fun to find all these great little gems um in your video store and it was an absolute blast myself because i was such a film nerd i had subscriptions to film magazines so i had a little bit more of a heads up on what was hitting the festival circuits and what was really resonating with critics and the people at the circuits. So I had a little bit of leg up, and it was so fun to finally see them come into my local video store and check them out. Reservoir Dogs was an absolutely spectacular film and a gut punch of... Uh, it was such an awakening of movies, and I loved, I loved that you never saw the heist, that the heist wasn't the important part of this movie. It was the interaction of these men. And... That was in part because Tarantino didn't have the budget to film the heist, but that's not what he was trying to get across. It's about these men. Rachel, you want to say something? Yeah, I was just sort of playing off that too. I was trying to think back of, outside of seeing Pulp Fiction first, of another movie that where where you sort of got introduced and it really is a movie all about the dialogue. There's lots of action in Reservoir Dogs, but it's all secondary to the dialogue that's happening to the characters. And when I saw it, so I would have been 14, like that was pretty, again, outside of Pulp Fiction, that was a pretty new experience for me of liking a movie that was based really heavily on dialogue. Yes. Of course, started the love for Quentin Tarantino and, and the, the filmmaking does that a movie that can be interesting without the heist and those type of things. And you're paying attention to what the characters are saying. So, I, I do. I, I agree. I think Reservoir Dogs just really set the stage for those types of films. And and I'm not a super like. I'm sure there's many more movies from before then that focused on dialogue. I I just never saw them. Yeah, and I agree. And and that's one of the things. Like for people that aren't um, Tarantino fans, they they all say, "Well, he's just a hack. He just steals ideas from other filmmakers." And Tarantino fully admits that. He's like, "Yeah, he's like I do it, but I put my own twist on it. I add my own way to it." Like. For me, Pulp Fiction, uh, I don't want to jump ahead because obviously it's obviously on my list, but it was one of the first movies where I realized the film wasn't told in chronological order. It wasn't uh, 
um, it wasn't told, and the, the movie was driven forward by dialogue, not by action, much like Reservoir Dogs. There is some action in Reservoir Dogs, but there's not a lot, and it's all about the stuff that you don't see. Like, one of my favorite things about Reservoir Dogs, everyone talks about the violence in it and about the ear-cutting scene. You don't see his ear get cut off. It's done off camera, and that's why it's so... It's, that's why it resonates with people so much is because your your imagination is going to do infinitely worse than seeing it on screen. And yeah. it's it's so perfectly edited and shot as, you know, Michael Madsen just walks slightly off camera. Or does, no, does he walk off? No, the no, camera, he, pans, yeah. camera pans away. He, yeah, he dances up towards him, and then I think you see his back. No, I, yeah, but then it, it, yeah, you see his, you see him from behind, and then it pans up to the ceiling. Yeah, yeah, because okay. he straddles him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I I do agree with. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut no, off your thought go, there. Go ahead. I, I I agree with just about everything that you're saying. But Tarantino, pe- people who don't like Quentin Tarantino movies will often say that he's uh, that the violence is mindless, and that it's uh, it's all just bloodshed basically and it's gratuitous and and i i don't understand these criticisms well i guess i should say i understand these criticisms but they're just wrong because this movie is completely about all these men interacting with each other and we talked we talked a lot uh in a previous episode i think manny about how um characters shown through the decisions that characters make under pressure and this whole movie is just one big pressure cooker of a situation nobody knows who's Nobody knows who's trustworthy. Nobody knows who else is alive. They don't know if Mr. Blonde can be trusted to not fucking murder people willy-nilly. <laughs> like, this, it's just one big pressure cooker, pressure cooker of a situation, and it just is really good at showing the characters of these men who pull off the heist. And that's what the movie's about. Yeah, a dude gets his ear chopped off. First of all, it's a fucking awesome scene. It's an iconic scene. But that's it's not what the movie's about. It's about the reaction to these decisions. Like... It's about the characterization of Mr. Blonde, that scene is. It, I, I think that scene works so well because we're told repeatedly up into that part, hey, Mr. Blonde went on a killing spree. Mr. Blonde can't be trusted. Mr. Blonde just told this cop he's going to torture him. Like, it, that scene works because there's half an hour of buildup before it. Mm-hmm. And then he talks into the cutoff ear. Yes. And it's yeah. so awesome. And again, this it plays into it because he's like, you're like, he totally is a crazy motherfucker. And this <laughs> is an act that is not even seen on screen. Like, this is yeah. the movie is just constructed to build up to this moment. And like, I, I don't in this particular instance and in most instances, I don't see how you can see that as anything other than brilliance, not just stupid, gratuitous violence. Mm-hmm. I agree. Uh, on, the, on one last note, uh, on. I wanted to touch on him stealing from other artists. I was trying to find this quote that I heard somewhere. I think it's from Pablo Picasso. Or I Googled it, and it says it's from Picasso. And he says, uh, good artists borrow and great artists steal. So one of the things I like the best about Quentin Tarantino is that he's a total cinephile. This oh. guy, if you listen to any interviews with him or even just watching his movies, it's so readily apparent that this guy, he might be the biggest film fan in the world i i i I feel comfortable making that assessment i agree wholeheartedly biggest film fan in the world he he's seen the most obscure movies he references the most obscure movies he steals filmmaking techniques he steals aesthetic he he borrows from all these other sources which just 
enrich his work. And that's one of the things I like about him. It doesn't make him a, a hack who steals from people. It makes him an artist. I agree. 100%. Sorry, I didn't mean to go on a rant there. But no, fucking I mean, rant yeah. away. I fucking love it. <laughs> uh, anything else uh, people want to say about Reservoir Dogs? Um, well, actually, I mean, we talked about the ear cutting scene. Uh, I mean, it's set to a wonderful soundtrack as all the most famous Tarantino scenes are mm -hmm. so, stuck in the middle with you. I mean, it's, it's just so iconic him dancing around all creepily. It's yep. so good. <laughs> Love it. Um, uh, though, actually the one thing I actually forgot to do and I'll, I'll, I'll do it at the end of this one. Is I actually forgot to mention my favorite scene in death proof. Oh yeah, that's right. That's which right. I will do when we do our favorite scene for reservoir dogs. When we get to the end here. Sure. Sure. Um, the uh, <laughs> the cast of Reservoir Dogs is really good. <laughs> oh, s spoiler alert! It has a cast. Spoiler it has a cast. Um, a really well known Annie. cast, like worth going to see for. Yep. <laughs> um, everybody does such a great job. I don't know if you guys know um, this, but uh, the actor who plays uh, Mr. Blue, um, his name's Eddie something. If I'm not mistaken, uh, Mr. Blue. Why can't I find him? Mr. Blue. Edward Bunker. Eddie Bunker. Um, he's actually a real-life criminal. Oh. Yeah. He's a real what? Sorry? He was a criminal in real life. Oh, damn. He was, he was an actor, but he had spent a significant amount of time in jail. Crazy. Um, I do, as always... Uh, with the movies on my list, I do have some trivia notes on it. If you'd like me to share them with you. Of course, as always, Manny. All right. Um, the budget wouldn't cover police assistance for traffic control. So in the scene where Steve Buscemi forces a woman out of her car and drives off in it, he could only do so when the traffic lights were green. <laughs> Goodness. Um, this one kind of touched my heart a little bit. And I'm, this kind of shows the skill of Michael Madsen. Uh, Michael Madsen had difficulty filming the torture scenes due to his strong aversion to violence of any kind and was particularly reluctant when he was required to hit Kirk Baltz. When Baltz ad-libbed the line that his character has a child at home, Madsen, who had just become a new father himself, was so disturbed by the idea of leaving a child fatherless that he almost couldn't finish the scene. This take made it into the movie and in some versions of the film you can clearly hear someone Possibly Quentin Tarantino himself utter, oh no, no, off screen. <laughs> um, following up with that, this one made me laugh. Uh, according to an interview on the DVD, Michael Madsen said that, says that Kirk Baltz asked to ride in his trunk to experience what it was really like. Madsen agreed, but decided as he went along that this was time for his own character development. So he drove down a long alley with potholes and then a Taco Bell drive-thru before taking Baltz back to the parking lot and letting him out. The soda he, <laughs> the soda he ordered at said drive-thru is the same one that can, he can be seen drinking during his character's first appearance. That's a, that's a great little tidbit there. I do love his line uh, when he, he's asked, I think it's by Mr. White, he asks him uh, if he needs to go finish his fries. He says, no, I had those already. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Quentin Tarantino originally wrote the role of Mr. Pink for himself. Steve Buscemi originally auditioned for the part of Mr. White. Michael Madsen originally auditioned for the part of Mr. Pink. George Clooney read for the role of Mr. Blonde, but was turned down. Oh. Christopher Walken refused to take the role of Mr. Blonde. 
Uh, Samuel L. Jackson auditioned for the role of Mr. Orange. Once Tim Roth was cast, Quentin Tarantino originally wanted him to play Mr. Blonde or Mr. Pink. Robert Forrester and Timothy Carey auditioned for the part of Joe Cabot, and the film was dedicated to Carey. Forrester eventually played Max Cherry in Tarantino's Jackie Brown. Uh, this is something that will resonate with last week's episode, Sam. Pop singer sensation Pink revealed in several interviews that her stage name was inspired by the character of Mr. Pink. Are you going to make me like Pink? God yep. damn it. <laughs> um, this is, uh, let's see here. Uh, oh. Um, when a panicked Mr. Pink arrives at the rendezvous point, he tells Mr. White that they were all set up and that there must be a rat within the group. Look carefully and you can see the injured Mr. Orange nervously produce his gun as though ready to shoot. I'd never noticed that before. No. And here's the last one I, I found uh, very interesting. Many people have asked Quentin Tarantino why Mr. Orange confessed to being a cop to Mr. White at the end of the movie. They argued that he only had to keep quiet for 60 more seconds and he would be in the clear. He mentions this in the DVD commentary for the film. His response to these individuals is that they did not truly understand the movie if they are asking this question. Tarantino says that in all of the Asian countries in which this movie was released, this question was never once asked. He says that in Japan, they have a word for this called Jingji. Without an English equivalent, it basically means that this was something that Mr. Orange had to do as a man. Something that he owed Mr. White. Furthermore, he could only do it in those 60 seconds when Mr. White would have the opportunity to do whatever he deemed necessary. Damn. That's some heavy, that's some heavy stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, it makes, I always, I always took it as a, uh, Mr. Orange is about to die and just feels he needs to get this off his chest and B, yeah, he, he owes it to Mr. White and he's, he's cared for him. Mr. White has cared for him and has taken care of him all this time. And he, he yeah, he's been sort of like a surrogate father figure in this time. Yeah. And took a bullet. I, I think he owed it to Mr. White. Took a bullet for him. Yeah. Right, yeah. I, I agree. I've always, I've always loved that Mr. Orange reveals everything to Mr. White at the end. Mm-hmm. Any, uh, any, any, any final thoughts on uh, Reservoir Dogs? Um, well, let's see. Um, we haven't really talked in general about the performances, but I've always loved Steve Buscemi in this movie. Uh, I always loved Steve Buscemi in general. Well, this um, was my I, introduction to Steve Buscemi. Same. I, I've, I was first familiarized with uh, Steve Buscemi through Fargo. I, I saw him in Fargo first. Oh, that's a great introduction. I yeah, know. And I've loved him ever since. No surprises there. Yeah, Steve yeah. Buscemi, I think, is one of our underrated actors. He really is. Yeah. So I, I think Steve Buscemi deserves a lot of credit. I mean, the entire cast deserves a lot of credit for this movie. The only other thing I really wanted to talk about that we didn't really get to is that um, the conclusion of this movie, I think, is uh, it's... To the uh, to the uninitiated, it can seem pretty sudden. It just the the movie just basically ends in the middle of a shootout. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like that it ends there. I mean, we come in at a cool ninety nine minutes, which for a Tarantino movie is nothing. It's a <laughs> nice breezy uh, runtime. But I like that it ends when it does because it's the last interesting thing that could happen. It's it, it's the conclusion to everyone's character arc. Everyone dies, and uh, I don't need. You know, any any sort of wrap up after that. It's the la- it, the movie cuts to black at the last conceivable interesting moment, and I think it's great. Perfect. 
Rage? Parting thoughts? No? Okay. Favorite scene? Let me do uh, my favorite scene yeah, in... Yeah, uh, I would agree with what oh. Sam just said. I did... Go ahead, I Rachel. I think our sound is... Am I really delayed? Oh, man, you're incredibly delayed. <laughs> we are definitely having some te technical difficulties here. Okay, how about now? <laughs> you tell me. I hear you guys just fine. Okay, then we're good okay. to go. All right. Am I delayed to you guys? You were for a bit, but you seem fine now. Oh, sorry about that. That's okay. <laughs> uh, I just had, the only other note I had was I really liked this scene where Tim Roth is practicing his pot story and mm. then how it shows him telling it in the bathroom and the camera work there. Mm -hmm. uh, I really thought that was great. And at that time in 94, pretty cool angle. Yep. Agreed. Um, just before we dive into our favorite scene, my favorite scene in Death Proof is ah, yes. the final car chase scene. Of course. Yeah. Worth the Everyone's price of admission alone. Okay. Favorite scene for Reservoir Dogs. Uh, well, let's just go in a normal order. Rach, favorite scene. Uh, this was hard between two. Between Mr. Pink, uh, the tip speech at the beginning, some great lines in there with like playing the world's smallest violin. But in the end, I chose when Joe is naming them. I love oh, that scene. great when scene. The look on his face when Mr. Pink is like, um, you know, I'll be Mr. Purple. And then Quentin <laughs> Tarantino was like, you know, brown sounds too much like shit like that. They care. And then the look <laughs> on Joe's face, like that he can't believe that they're actually having this conversation and that they think they might have a say in what their name is. It's I love that scene. And then uh, and then Mr. Pink pretends to take the high road at the end after he's already yeah. objected numerous times. He's like, ah, it's no difference to me. Whatever. I'll be Mr. Pink. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's my favorite. <laughs> For me, my favorite scene is the ear torture scene. It's so incredibly unforgettable. Uh, Michael Madsen just kills it. His little shuffle, his little dance, how the actual violence of the scene is off screen. It's so beautifully shot. The little comedic moment where he speaks into the ear, can you hear this? <laughs> Giggles. And then I like that he wipes the blood off on him. It's, uh, it, that's my favorite scene. Sam? Stuck in the middle with you. Yeah, it's uh it's easily the the torture scene. It's so it's horribly funny. Like it's a funny scene, but it's absolutely horrific. Um I like how he even comes even the way he splashes the gasoline on him is so menacing and funny at the same time. Uh yeah, one of the most iconic scenes in a Tarantino movie, so I'm I'm gonna go with that one. Um side note, do you wanna talk now or do you wanna talk at the later movie about Mr. Blonde's real name. Well, we can talk right now. Mr. Blonde's real oh, name I, is... I, I just thought it would... I figured it would be one of your tidbits that uh, Mr. Blonde's real name is Vic Vega. Yep. Yeah, which... Brother uh, to which, Vincent. Brother to Vincent. And uh, Tarantino really, really badly wanted to get a Vega Brothers movie going. He wanted to get a movie about... Uh, Mr. Blonde uh, and then Vincent from Pulp Fiction. But uh, with them being as old as they are... Uh, now it wouldn't wouldn't make a whole lot of sense, nope. especially with what happens to those respective characters. Holy so. fuck! Spoilers. Oh, sorry. Uh, what with what happens to Mister Blonde? I meant <laughs> Vincent. Vincent is fine. I'm sure. Yeah, totally fine. 
<laughs> so yeah, I just wanted to point that out before I moved on. Perfect. Uh, I don't even know whose turn we're on right now. My number four was Reservoir Dogs. Sam's number four was Reservoir Dogs. Okay, yep. so we're Rachel's number three. Rachel, your number three film. My number three uh, breaking predictions is Django Unchained. What Whoa. the fuck? So Manny and I both thought this was going to be uh, number one on your list, right? It sure did. Was, it actually, I go back and when we talk about my number two, I actually went back and forth between this one and my number two quite a bit um, oh. over the last couple of days. But it, it landed as my number three. I will say, touch higher on mine. So Not on a, my list. Get the fuck out of here, for real? What? Oh, that's surprising to me, man. <laughs> absolutely surprising. Are you? Are, I can't tell if you're joking right now. Are you joking? It's not on my list. <sighs> Man, that's too bad. All right. Good movie. So okay, it's we, we will discuss it though uh, when when we get to when we get to it on my list though. All right. Uh, so Manny, I think we're on your number three, correct? Yeah, number three. Inglorious Bastards. Uh, yep. I already did the flipping through my notes bit, so I'll just say it's a touch higher on mine as well. Uh, just a touch. <laughs> Just a touch. All just right. a touch higher on my list. All right. Um, and we're not going to be able to talk about mine either because mine is – my number three is Pulp Fiction. Mm. So uh, Not I on my list. One or yeah, – fuck right <laughs> here. One or – both of you probably have that higher on yours. All right. Higher on mine. All right. Yeah. So I will also say I took a photo at Time Stop. I tried to guess your top five. And uh, Sam, I've guessed – I think I've guessed all your top three. Really? Okay. Yeah, I'll send you, I'll text you the timestamp after, Manny. All right. <laughs> but I, I guessed it would, Pulp would be your number three. I mean, it doesn't surprise me. I'm, a, I'm an open book and I'm predictable <laughs> as fuck. I surprise no one. All right, so we can't uh, discuss any movies. Let's move on to Rachel's number two film. Number two for me is Pulp Fiction. I have it a smidge higher on my smidge list. Smidge higher than number two for Manny. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that moves to my number two. Yes. My number two, which I think is now a shock to my two brethren here, is The Hateful Eight. That is a shock. I'm just kidding. It it's is. kill it's I kill Bill. Racking my brain and I was like, it has to be the Hateful Eight. No, it's kill it's kill Bill, the whole bloody oh. affair. <laughs> Okay. I was kidding. I was kidding. Jesus. My number two Don't do that to me, Manny. My number two film is Kill Bill, The Whole Bloody Affair. I'll be honest. Um, the reason this is on number two is because these two movies are combined into one. If I had to separate Kill Bill and Kill Bill, Kill Bill Volume 1 and Kill Bill Volume 2, I can tell you right now they probably both would have made my top five, but the order of my films would have been completely different. Interesting. I would agree mine would change a little bit. And Kill Bill is slightly higher on my list. Holy <laughs> fuck. All right. So let's move on to Sam's number two. Okay. Are we ever going to be able to talk about a movie? <laughs> I, th I think we're going to be able to talk about a movie right now. I think, I think you're correct because my second favorite Quentin Tarantino movie is Django Unchained. Nice. All right. <laughs> So, I mean, being being the age that I am and getting into Tarantino when I did, um, I think I'm a little bit more partial to his newer movies. I, I think I have a decent amount of bias in that regard. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, I mean, Django, uh, I, I went to theaters for it. I think it was probably, yeah, it was the first Tarantino movie I went to theaters for. 
Uh, I had seen a couple uh, before, but I had never seen one in theaters. And man, just absolutely, uh, it, it blew me away the first time I saw it. Uh, much like all of the white people in this movie are blown away by Django's pistol <laughs> at the end. <laughs> um, so uh, remind me, did, uh, Manny didn't have this on his list. Rachel, you had this where? Number three. Yeah, this is number three. Okay. Um, did you want to maybe uh, give some opening thoughts on it uh, since you uh, since you had it earlier? Uh, sure. So in my notes, I have Django is not the help. Um, the help came out in 2011. And I wrote about Django that it's crazy and vain enough to address race relations that are uncomfortably closer to the truth than a lot of movies then did, like the help in those um I don't know what else. It was, and it, while still being vintage Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, I, I would agree with just about all of that. I mean, on the note of it being vintage Quentin Tarantino, like the opening to this movie gets me every time. The, the opening theme song, the Django. Like that, <laughs> that's already just such a cool aesthetic for his movie. It's already just like, like clearly an homage to old Westerns. Um, and then we get into like, the first first scene intro into uh, King Schultz. I love Schultz as a character. I love Christoph Waltz as an actor. Um, it's such a good intro to him as a character. I, I, I do love the character of Schultz because he's never... Let me put it this way. When he is the aggressor, it's because the guy deserved it. Like He, he kills so many people unprovoked in this movie, and then it's revealed after the fact that they're actually a bad guy. So he gets he gets to sort of double dip. He gets to be the badass, and he gets to uh, and he gets to also be the good guy. So I've always liked that about him. <clears throat> Manny, do you have uh, do you have anything you want to say about Django as to why you uh, you had to find it within yourself to omit it from your list? Yeah, I well, I love Django. And in all honesty, like I've been saying to people throughout the last about week and a half as they've been inquiring about what this week's episode is, um, I'll take an even, like, I'll take Quentin Tarantino's worst movie over most film directors' best movie. This man is a a pure cinematic genius. I, I loved Django Unchained. I just didn't like it as much as the other films that are on my list. There's nothing wrong with this movie. I absolutely adore it. With Leonardo DiCaprio playing a villain for the first time since The Man in the Iron Mask, he absolutely goes over the top and earned his Oscar nomination. I... What? No. Was he... Was he nominated? He was nominated. I know that... He was nominated, yes. Was it Best Supporting as well, though? It must have been. I believe so, yeah. Well, he lost to his co-star, and rightfully so. Um, The movie... I guess for me, the weak point of the film, and it's and this is for me, this is really rare for a Tarantino film, is that I found Jamie Foxx to be underwhelming. Um, he didn't quite resonate enough with me. It's not that he was bad. It's just that he wasn't at the same level as everyone else around him. Interesting. And that's, and that's rare for a Tarantino film. Um, there were some other people that were up for the role. Uh, originally, it was supposed to be Will Smith, um, but also Idris Elba, Chris Tucker, Terrence Howard, t- sorry, Terrence Howard, uh, uh, Tyrese Gibson, and Michael Kenneth Williams were also up for the role of Django. Um, 
he Tarantino originally wrote it uh, originally wrote it with Smith in mind, but um, Smith decided to pass, and then it went to Fox, um, who took it. Uh, I don't. I'm not. I'm. I'm wishy-washy on Will Smith. Um, I've heard a lot of things about him during his filming that would lead me to believe that if he was in this movie, it wouldn't be anywhere near as good. Um, so I'm kind of glad that Jamie Foxx did get it because it's still... This movie's still great, but I, I kind of wish... Actually, I, I, I can't think of somebody I would have rather seen in this role... But he's just so overshadowed by everyone else, especially by the Oscar-winning performance by Christoph Waltz and the Oscar-nominated performance by Leonardo DiCaprio and, of course, Samuel Jackson killing it. Um, I, I, I really like this movie. Uh, it just couldn't make my top five. It's funny. I'm trying to find any sort of evidence that Leo was actually nominated for this movie, and I cannot seem to find it. Christoph Waltz won the Best Supporting Actor this year. I don't think he was. Yeah, I don't think yeah. he was nominated. Interesting. I'm, I'm, yeah. Maybe I'm thinking of Golden Globes then, which is disgusting. <laughs> yeah, when does anyone ever think of Golden Globes? But yeah, um, I, I think this movie has a lot going for it. It has uh, brilliant performances all around. I know you said you didn't like Jamie Foxx all that much, but I, I, I do like him in this movie. He he doesn't really necessarily have a lot to do, I guess, um, but I, I definitely didn't uh, see him sticking out like a sore thumb or anything like that. Um, I mean, what else can I really say about this movie? Leo DiCaprio, as was touched on, is I had never seen him as a villain before. It was shocking the first time that we see a crash zoom onto Leo's face when he's watching the Mandingo fight, when when he just turns around and gives that little smile with a cigarette in his hand. It's a, it's a really good intro. Um, the, there's also the famous uh, Leonardo DiCaprio scene in this movie um, where uh, yeah. they're at the dinner table and he are, are you trying to find that right now, Manny? Or no, is that, no, uh, I'm or, no. OK, <laughs> but yeah, I'm sure both of you are aware of that. Rachel, are you aware of where I'm going with this? Yeah, with the hands. <laughs> yeah. So for those listeners who don't know, for the for the two mo- movie nerds listening who don't know this fact about Django Unchained, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio in the scene where uh, he's threatening to kill Broomhilda and uh, he's telling uh Schultz that if he doesn't pay $12,000, he's going to murder her because she's his property currently. Uh, he smashes his hand down on the table and uh, breaks a glass and it ends up cutting his hand. And it turns out that's actually real. Uh, he was not supposed to cut his hand. That was not scripted. He smashed down on a real life glass, actually cut his hand and continued on with the scene, using it as a prop, smearing it over Kerry uh, Washington's face. Or is that Kerry Washington in that role? Yes. Yes. Okay, yeah. I wanted to double-check that before I went further. But, yeah, um, smeared it all over her face, used it as a prop, and uh, yeah. I feel feel really bad for her in that role, but goddamn if that wasn't a, a fine piece of acting right there by Mr. DiCaprio. I love that. Like, you can... Leo is having the best time of his life with this movie. Until Wolf of Wall Street, I don't think I could ever say I thought Leo was having more fun with the role than this role. Yeah, I, I would definitely, uh, off the top of my head, I can't think of another one that I thought he was having more fun with. Um, but yeah, I mean, the man's the man's a living genius. I'm so happy that he got his Oscar win after all that time. Because I, I remember when he got snubbed for this one, this was around the time people started going, hey, this guy uh, hasn't had an Oscar win yet. We should probably uh, do him a salt at some point. 
I, in, uh, I was checking. It was the Golden Globes I was thinking of, and in my I mind, see. in my mind, that's I can remember exactly. I remember, I can remember seeing uh, Leo sitting at his table, and that and that nomination. So I, I uh, in a in a, an extremely rare occurrence, I made a mistake. Wow! And confused the. How's it feel? The, it, it's it's well, I'm a I'm a man enough to admit why I made a mistake, but. I'm angry at myself for conflicting or confusing the Golden Globes and the Oscars. So I, I apologize to you, Academy. Um, last thing I wanted to talk about on this movie was uh, King Schultz's death. One of the most badass deaths in a Tarantino movie because the man is just so principled. You know, he's like he's he's a foreigner in this land of America where, you know, it, it, the gloves come off when he hits when he hits the turf and uh in America, there's there's no rules, there's no politeness. Leo DiCaprio just bested him and has insisted that he shakes his hand. And he, even though it dooms him and his partner and Broomhilda, he has to shoot Leo DiCaprio on principle of him just being a fucking asshole. And I, uh, I, I always, for some reason, I always love that death scene from him. Nice. Uh, if, if nobody has anything else to say, maybe we should just do a favorite scene. I've got a little bit of trivia on that if you'd like. Oh, sure, sure. Um, during filming of one of the dinner scenes, Leonardo DiCaprio had to stop the scene because he was having a difficult time using so many racial slurs. Samuel L. Jackson pulled him aside telling him, Motherfucker, this is just another Tuesday for us. <laughs> That's one thing I guess we didn't touch on is uh, how much the N-word, how liberally it's used in this movie. And honestly, in, in all Tarantino movies. Yeah, Having watched seven of his movies this week, I've never heard the N-word spoken so many times. Yeah, it's said over 160 times in this movie. Yeah, doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Um, after an accident in training where Christoph Waltz was thrown off his horse and broke his pelvis, Jamie Foxx gave him a gift to make him feel better about riding a horse... He gave him a saddle with a seatbelt. Aww. <laughs> um, Christoph Waltz actually turned down the role when first given the script. He felt it was too tailored to his persona. Tarantino insisted and wouldn't take no for an answer. Waltz agreed under one condition. His character had to be pure and never once act in a negative or evil manner. Tarantino sent him a handwritten letter that simply said, Of course, mine hair. Q. Aww. Waltz sent a telegram back saying, Mine hair, of course, CW. <laughs> Those are just some of the little tidbits I found on... Uh, I, I love... I, I want them to have a real-life bromance. Is that so much to ask? Ugh. <laughs> Christoph Waltz... The, the combination of Christoph Waltz and Quentin Tarantino is a spectacular and a marriage made in heaven. The way that Waltz uses and plays with Tarantino's dialogue is watching a maestro at work. He is spectacular in both this and obviously in Glorious Bastards, which we'll get to shortly. It's an absolute joy to watch this man work and play with uh, Tarantino's dialogue. Agreed. All right, favorite, favorite scene. scene. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, sorry, Rach, go ahead. No, we're, we'll get to it when we talk about Inglorious. All okay. good. All right. Favorite scene rachel my favorite scene in django is the kkk scene <laughs> I, nice good pick good pick this scene at first 
when they first start writing out, you, you think it's going to be this intense bloodshed scene. And then when they start talking about the masks and Willem's wife made them, you can't see. And, well, can we wear them? Not this time, but maybe next time. And I, like, just bust a gut every time I watch that scene. It's it's just perfect where it is in the movie. And I just love everything about it. That's my favorite scene. I, I was watching this with uh, Jordan this time around. And she said, I was waiting for that scene the entire time because the first words out of her mouth were, what the fuck? Is that Jonah Hill? (laughs) (laughs) Which was great. My favorite scene might actually be the scene where Dr. Schultz finds Django right at the beginning. Mm. The whole scene, the dialogue, the way that Schultz just is using proper English and the two slave traders being dumb hillbillies don't understand really what he's saying or getting pissed at him. I, I just love that whole scene. Yeah, I, I like I like that one too. Good intro to the character. Yeah. Sam, your favorite scene? Uh, it's going to be the dinner table scene where uh, Leo has Broomhilda essentially held hostage and he's screaming in his squeaky Leonardo DiCaprio voice uh, that he's going to murder her if they don't pay up. And Christoph Waltz just has to do the right thing or King Schultz has to do the right thing there. Um, I've always loved that scene, and I think the performance by Leo really carries it. And again, this is—I will just say—this is another one of those moments uh, that makes or just shows why Tarantino is such a genius. Is that this scene has been bubbling and brewing for like 20 minutes, and uh, little moments of tension of Stephen, who we've barely talked about, but Samuel L. Jackson's really funny in this movie, of Stephen sort of becoming suspicious. Uh, ratting them out to uh, Calvin, and then Calvin sort of slowly toying with them through the course of this conversation when he brings out uh, Ben's skull and he's uh, cutting it open. Like this is a, like a twenty-minute-long scene, and mm-hmm. it just—it's a slow burn, and it pays off really well. Um, speaking of Broomhilda, I have a little uh, tidbit on her as well. Sure. Uh, Tarantino revealed at Comic Con that Django and Broomhilda are meant to be the great, great, great grandparents of the character John Shaft. <laughs> Why? <laughs> A- an overt reference to this connection can be found in Washington characters Washington's character's full name. Her character's name? Brunhilde von Shaft. Brunhilde von Shaft. <laughs> That's funny. That's really funny. <laughs> I, I don't know if that'll ever uh, come to fruition or if that'll that fact will ever pay off in another movie, but God damn it, I love it. Yep. <laughs> All right. Are we now at our number ones? Uh, yeah, because I just listed my number two, so we're on Rachel's number one. All right. Uh, no, Manny, your number two. Is your number one. Oh. My yeah. number two is your number one. We didn't talk about your number three, then. My number three is Sam's number one. Oh, it's your number four. <laughs> Reservoir Dogs. But where was Hateful Eight? He, he was that was joking. a joke. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, God. oh, God. It's getting late. I worked at five this morning, so it's getting late for we me. We appreciate the sacrifice. <laughs> um, my number one, Kill Bill. Kill Bill. I was not expecting that, honestly. I mean, like I said, I don't have a good read on you yet, but Kill Bill was not it. Wow. Yeah, I'd actually love an explanation on why this is number one. Yes, please. I 
you know what? I love this movie. Out of all Quentin Tarantino's movies, this movie is the one I watch the most. And you were talking earlier about Volume 1 and Volume 2. I would say as one, it's my number one. But if they had been split up, Volume 2 would have been uh, further back on my list. I there To me, this movie, it's so fun. I love a good revenge movie. Um, super great that it's Uma Thurma kicking ass, but I don't want to get into that it's a female kicking ass because that really doesn't have anything to do with it for me. I love the storytelling aspect of Kill Bill and all the different stories of how her revenge is and how she goes. Her drive in this movie is impressive. And I just... You know, you're rooting for her the whole time. Everything that she goes through, everything that he puts her through in this movie, I, I love it from start to finish. Yeah, that's something we've talked about on the show before. Uh, it's definitely a good, I mean, it's what good writers do and it's what great writers do is that you put your protagonist in shit situations. Like they, Quentin Tarantino is not kind to uh, the bride in this movie or uh, what was her name? Uh, Beatrix Kiddo. Yeah. Not, not, not kind to her in this movie at all. Um, so uh, I, I definitely agree with you. She gets buried alive. She gets uh, shot by a shotgun. Uh, she, oh, I can't even think of what else. Oh, uh, well, you forgot what puts her in the gets, coma. Yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, she, she gets. Alive. I mean, she gets. Yeah, shot in the face. Okay, right off the bat. But yeah, yeah she gets. She gets buried she, alive. Yeah. Um, she just and her drive and her perseverance to seek. Her Start again, Rach. You, you broke up there for a bit. Uh, I don't know where I was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we were, we were talking about uh, all the abuse that she took in this movie. Oh, yeah. And I said she, had, she was buried alive. Um, really just everything from the first fight. And I like that it's a lot of uh, fist-to-fist fighting in this movie. Uh, not that I don't love shoot 'em up movies, but I do like that there's a lot of fist to fist with the dialogue to go along with it. I love the flashbacks to uh, the other stories that are really important to the movie, like with Pia May and you know her and Bill's relationship. And yeah, I I just love 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 this movie. It's definitely the one Tarantino movie that I watch the most. Yeah, I was watching. Uh, I was watching a Tarantino interview where he said something to the effect of, "All of his movies are unique to him. Like he has a very unique style. Of course, we all know that. But he still wants all of his genre pieces to be enjoyed within that genre. So, like for example, Kill Bill is very obviously a Tarantino movie, but he needed it to be enjoyed as a martial arts film as well. This this movie does really succeed as a martial arts film. I really like all the fight scenes are really well choreographed." You can tell that Uma Thurman did a ton of work because her uh, all of her or a lot of her fighting is very in camera. It uh, relatively long takes, wide shots, um, and the scenes are all very well mapped out. So yeah, the hand to hand scenes uh, are are very well done. In particular, I think the crazy eighty eight scene is a really good looking fight scene. I agree, and it's so over the top. The the crazy eighty eight scene, like you know, her against a hundred. Or eighty-eight, or whatever. Yeah. And but it's still like the gore in that scene. I love it, and just yeah, that's a really great scene. I'm sorry, Sam. Did this make your list? Oh uh, yeah, it did. It was number five. Number five. That's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. Um. 
I fucking love this movie. Obviously, it's my number two. It's so much fun. And so the violence is so over the top, it doesn't feel gratuitous to me. Like, the blood sprays when she cuts limbs and it's like a fucking fire hose. To me, for some reason, it just doesn't resonate as being gratuitous or even gross. It's just kind of funny. (laughs) Yeah, I Um, agree. It's... The Kill Bill Volume One is so gorgeously shot. I'm act. I was stunned to f- realize that this didn't get a cinematography nomination. I I'm in actually in in awe of that. The, his yeah, I didn't get any nominations. Neither one of them did. Yeah, and that's uh, that's ridiculous in my opinion. But whatever. Um, he's having so much fun with this movie trying out new things, throwing a whole anime sequence in the middle of a movie to show Oren Ishii's um, origin story. Spectacular. And Yeah, that was an unreal scene. I, I loved when, it. When I was in the theater and all of a sudden it goes to anime, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, this is the bravery that this man has to do crazy, um, 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 just imagine of things like this. And the best part about it is that use of anime allows him to show that part of the story that you want because you couldn't show that like I don't think it would resonate as well if that was shown for I guess for lack of a better world with real actors yeah like in live action is what I, you're yeah to say. and I 100% agree and that scene was like so like heart ripping out when the blood is when he kills her on the bed and the blood is going through down the knife and, and landing on her yep. as a young girl, like I, that scene is just so intense. Um, I think I think the minor characters in this movie, as good as Uma Thurman is, and uh, as good as the bride is as a character and how resilient she is, I think the minor characters really make this movie. Um, L Driver is such a badass character i love her so much yeah with the with the one eye and i love how uh even in their battle the reference to uh how she lost her eye in the first place and then it's mirrored again in the battle she's just left there i I love the severity and what what a bitch l is i love her um i think oren ishii is uh is a fantastic character as well um yeah, I mean, there, there's so many, so many good side characters in this movie. Those are two of the better ones, though. Oh, I'm trying to find it. What? Oh, it's down I really, there. I really like Bud, and I, I love that Elle has her little notebook, like this little quirk that she just writes these little notes in, these yeah. little facts that she can use this later. Fact, this is pre-Wikipedia, I guess. So she just wrote yeah. down <laughs> the entire encyclopedia entry about the Black Mamba. Yeah, fantastic. Um, L Driver's death scene. Um, she actually improvised that where her eye gets ripped out. Um, she did it. She went, she went all nuts and crazy. She did that on one take because she just wanted to make Quentin Tarantino laugh. And he loved it so much. That's the, that's the one that he kept in the film. That's so fucking cool. <laughs> Man, there's so many cool facts about Tarantino. He's, you can tell he just loves the, uh, the chaotic side of filmmaking too. Like there's so many instances of just chance encounters that make it into his movies. I think too, I really like that the characters of this movie, while obviously lack morals in a big way, in some instances, 
talk about having like doing what's right and having morals in the other like when I think of the the hospital scene and he phones her just as Elle is going to kill her mm-hmm. and he's like no if she wakes up she deserves to come after us and that and we're not going to kill her like that because that's not who we are like their choices in deciding when they're going to have morals and not and the reasonings for it I really enjoyed yeah the, I think that's something that Tarantino finds himself fascinated by is sort of like killer's ethics I, I think yeah. that's a, a side of the world that average people like us three don't really get to see the 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 ethics of uh, bounty hunters and of assassins and things like that. So I, I always find that kind of thing really interesting too, because yeah, there, there's sort of this unwritten code among them and this code of respect, even though they're they're killers, they're they're assassins, they're monsters. So it's um, it, uh, and then you can sort of even within the killer community, pick out who the bad guys are. So even though Uma Thurman is a monster and just goes on a rampage, she's still the good guy as compared to someone like Gogo. Like, Gogo yeah. is, uh, is like, just a merciless maniac psycho who just wants to see people suffer. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that really differentiates them is their code. Yeah, yeah. And, and I love, like, just exactly what you're talking about. One of the... One of the great scenes in the in the in the films is the battle between Oranishi and the bride and they get into that battle out in the snow garden and uh, they both get a blow against one another or a strike and they're both in pain and suffering and it's there that Oranishi apologizes for mm-hmm. uh, for I can't remember what she apologizes for she's calling her something and then yeah she had called her down earlier and yeah. kind of made fun of her for not being able to fight yeah and she apologizes and then the bride accepts the apology and then the battle continues it's it's yeah. an honor among thieves kind of thing and it's so well played and yeah you're like you said all the minor characters like the the scene where oren ishii is at the uh yakuza table and it's just a tiny little backstory they've all we've already told her her origin story but Tarantino's like, well, are people going to be able to believe that a Chinese-American is the head of the Yakuza? Well, let's find out. Let's give a scene on why she's the head of the Yakuza. And it's such a great scene. And again, the violence over the top and that fucking delivery, that little, the, mm-hmm. the end of that scene where, oh, fuck, why can't I remember her name? What's the actress's name? Lucy uh, Liu. Thank you, Lucy Liu. When she's all calm until the end, She's like, I'll kill every last motherfucking last one of you or something along those lines. It's it's such a great little touch. It's all these little things the movie's having a blast doing. And uh, it's just a pure joy ride to, to watch both these films back to back. The best line that Lucy Liu has is uh, when on the note of her uh, ethnicity, she says, if somebody references my American or Chinese heritage in a negative way, I will collect your fucking head. Yep. That, and that is the most badass line, maybe in both of these movies. Yeah, a big yeah. fan. Um, I think that's all I... Oh, uh, David Carradine is Bill. Unreal. Mm-hmm. His voice, because we don't really, you know, we only see his hand, and we, see, and we hear his voice in, the, in Volume 1, and then we get to see him in Volume 2, and the ending is so perfect between him and uh, and Beatrix. 
I, I do have to say, the, I think the main reason why this isn't higher on my list is because I didn't find... The, the ending is a little slow. Like, I, I have no problem with slow and methodical for uh, the sake of tension, mm-hmm. but uh, the, the ending, in my opinion, takes a bit to get going. From where, from like, from when she gets to Mexico, like when she goes to the brothel, up until, yeah. So like the, the brothel scene, uh, kind of feels not necessarily out of place, but it kind of almost feels like filler, a little bit. Yep, I can agree. Um, we don't you don't, then, you don't even need the brothel scene. You really don't. Um, and then when she arrives home, um, we already. It is nice to see a reaction to her child. We already. Eh, maybe I was I was going to say we already know that, so we don't need to spend a lot of time on it. But it's a it's a big plot thing, so I can see why we would spend so much time on it. But mostly, it's it's her and Bill's conversation, um, and the whole thing with like the truth serum. Like I, I was just kind of like waiting to to get going during that scene. Maybe that's just me. Fair enough. Yeah, no, I would agree, and I think that's why Kill Bill Volume Two Two would have been higher. Um, or ranked lower on my list, I think because the, the second movie, like it's leading into the resolution. So mm-hmm. you're, you're, the climax is clearly the restaurant scene with Oren Ishii. And then you've got a couple of other little plots that happen, but then you're heading into resolution. And, and I think when you watch volume two as its own movie, it, it does feel like a longer burn. It suffers a little bit. Yeah. Yep. I, I can understand that. But again, for me, like I said before, like I, I love spending time with characters, so the whole truth serum scene and all that was fine for me. Mm-hmm. But I completely understand why others, such as you, Sam, would would uh, would feel that it drags it down a little bit. Uh, the last thing I wanted to touch on really was the soundtrack. Like every Tarantino movie has a really spectacular soundtrack, but this one in particular, I think, stands out as one of the more exceptional. Uh, soundtracks in his uh, filmography. Uh, there's so many good instances of music being used to good effect. Um, the the band uh, the, the band's real life name, I guess, is the Five Six Seven Eights. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. their their performance during uh, during the restaurant scene is so epic. I, I really like uh, the levity that it adds. Um, I like how uh, the song Ironside pl- plays every time. Uh, the bride sees somebody that she wants to kill, and then there's just all these other really good uh, songs just sprinkled throughout the movie that add a lot. Battle without uh, honor or humanity. That one is a, that one is pretty da- pretty damn badass. I've always said that if I was ever a UFC fighter, this would be my walkout song. <laughs> I think that's a good choice. I agree on on the soundtracks for all of them. I I do still have them all on. CD and listen to them. I wouldn't say regularly, but but enough. Like all of the movies, all the soundtracks, they're so good. Agreed. Uh, I of course have some trivia notes on this. Sure. All right. Um, at the beginning of the fight scene between Oren and the bride, after Oren says in Japanese, "I hope you saved your energy. If you haven't, you may not last five minutes." It is exactly four minutes and 59 seconds from the time she steps forward and the music cues until the fatal blow of the duel. That's a, that's a neat little thing there. I like that. Uh, the shot where the bride splits a baseball in two with a samurai sword was done for real. It was done by Zoe Bell. Nice. That's Uma Thurman's stunt double and star of Death Proof. It all ties together. Yep. Um, not, um, question for you. Do you 
understand or recognize the bride's yellow suit? Uh, no, it, no, no, I can't say I do. Okay. I it's, mean, the the color yellow is kind of associated with uh, the bride in this movie. I always just ca- kind of assumed it was this uh, color coding thing of like uh, a caution or like it's just the color is just sort of associated with her. Um, I, I always figured it was color coding like like a bee or a wasp or something. No, sort it, of like a caution. it's it's inspired by uh, Bruce Lee in his final film, Game of Death. He wears a, basically an almost exact same costume. That's such a Tarantino fact, too. That's what I'm talking about. The man just loves movies. Only he would insert something like that into a movie. Here are four people who passed on the role. Sorry, five. Five people that passed on the role of Bill. Ready? Yep. Number one. Jack Nicholson. Shit. Number two, Kurt Russell. That surprises huh. me. Number three, yeah. Mickey Rourke. Okay. Number, Wouldn't have missed it. Number four, Burt Reynolds. <laughs> really? <laughs> and number five, Warren Beatty. Right. You know, I like I like, uh, I, I like um, I'm sorry, I can't think of the actor's name. Who David they Carradine? Cast. Yeah, David Carey. I like him as Bill. I do. But, I mean, how could you say no to Jack Nicholson? That, w- that would have been something to see. I know. I agree, yeah. Uh, kill- I, I, I liked how reserved... Sorry, uh, just yeah. one final thought on that. David Carradine's very reserved in his performance. He's yes. very, uh, very laid back. And I think that sort of adds to the menace of him. And Jack Nicholson... For, for the great actor that he is, I think is at his best when he's erratic. Agreed. So, so I, I like the way that they went. Me too. Yeah, I agree. And, and on that too, just I had written a note about the scene at the beginning of the second movie where Uma and Bill um, or Beatrix and Bill are talking outside the chapel. And it is that reserved, like that scene is so intense because you know what's going to happen. Yep. And he's just there chatting with her the the love of his life or whatever she meant to him he's just seen her for the first time pregnant with the baby uh getting married and most people would react or probably not the first time he saw her because he knew she was there but the way most like somebody like jack nicholson would react to that in that scene you would expect crazy and he's so calm when they're talking on the deck but it's so intense yeah i agree i think uh that's where sort of the non-linear storytelling comes into it like we touched on that briefly with death proof how it's the only one that's told perfectly in chronological order Mm -hmm. but i think it's moments like this that show the purpose of telling a a movie out of order because this scene doesn't play nearly as well if this is our first time meeting bill agreed if we haven't if we haven't seen him do anything menacing he's perfectly polite he's he's uh like basically a father figure and this scene is not tense if we don't already know the things that he's capable of. Agreed. Well Agreed. said. Yeah. <clears throat> um, Kill Bill, Volume 1 and Volume 2, are the only Tarantino films in which there is no use of the N-word. What? Yeah. <laughs> I knew there was something missing. Um, if you remember the opening scene, Bill calls the bride by her last name. Kiddo. <laughs> but we all think it's just a, a little pet name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Robert Rodriguez scored this movie for one dollar. He, s- Robert Rodriguez scored the movie. Yep. 
Really? For one dollar. <laughs> what, what a good guy. Quentin Tarantino said he would repay him, so he directed a segment of Sin City for one dollar. <gasps> uh, that's a great bromance right there. Yeah. Um, the brothel segment, where the bride meets Esteban Vajejo, played by Michael Parks, the guy that played the uh, sheriff and the number one son, um, was the last scene in the movie to be shot. It was filmed at a real Mexican brothel, and all of the female extras were real prostitutes. Goodness. Um, Ricardo Montalban was actually originally cla- uh, Ricardo Montalban was originally cast to play Esteban, but he was unable to make an early read through of the script, so his lines were read by Michael Parks, who impressed Tarantino so much that he recast Parks instead. Uh, okay, here's a little note that kind of dives into a little bit of dark history, but I felt it was worthy of you guys to share because I thought you guys might like it. In 2018, Uma Thurman posted footage online of a car accident that occurred in 2002 while filming this movie. At the time, Thurman had voiced her reservations about filming a scene while driving a car over a straight dirt road and requested a stunt performer. However, since the scene was not considered to be a stunt and the stunt coordinator was not on set that day, Tarantino persuaded her to shoot the scene herself. While driving the car, there was an unexpected turn in the road causing Thurman to lose control of the car and crashing it into a tree, leaving her with a concussion and damaged knees. She tried to obtain the footage as proof, but Harvey Weinstein reportedly refused to release it unless she signed a document that would release the company from any liability. Years later, Tarantino finally gave her the footage and helped her come forward in the wake of multiple sexual assault charges against Weinstein, with Thurman also claiming to be one of the victims. Uma Thurman and Quentin Tarantino admitted that the incident had caused a breach in trust, which affected their working relationship for several years, but they've reconciled afterwards and remain on good terms ever since. Yeah, uh, this is, I, I was aware of that. Um, it, it's sort of why I chose my words carefully when I was going into the rant about uh, Quentin Tarantino treating his characters poorly. I was very careful to say that he treats the bride poorly, not uh, Uma Thurman, because that could have been uh, misconstrued in, in light of that story. Yeah. And the last note I have, which is the rumor, we hear all these rumors all these time about Tarantino making movies. In an interview, Quentin Tarantino stated that there will be a Kill Bill Volume 3, but it wouldn't happen for a decade, and he discussed the possibility of a spin-off centering around Vernita Green's daughter, Nikki, who seeks vengeance upon the bride. The plot of Kill Bill Volume 3 could possibly be about the bride who is forced to return to her former violent life when Nikki Green kidnaps her daughter, Bibi, in order to lure the bride into a deadly trap. And the bride learns Nikki is not acting alone and is working with L Driver, now a blind swordswoman. Whoa. <laughs> wow. I would pay good money to see that. Yeah, Tarantino's talked numerous times about doing a volume three and using that same actress that played little Nikki. Yeah, I, I would absolutely pay to go see that. Is she still acting? Not that it really matters to Tarantino. I don't know. Let me find out. Hmm. Is that all that you had for uh, for factoids, by the way? That's everything, my friends. Alrighty. Do we uh, do we want to move on to favorite scene? Totally can. All right, uh, Rachel. I believe we've been starting with. 
my favorite scene is the fight in the garden with uh, the bride and Oren Ishii. Uh, close second was her punching her way out of the coffin. Cool. I love that scene. Oh, good picks. Uh, Manny? Favorite scene is the uh, Oren Ishii versus the bride in the snow garden. It's so gorgeously okay. shot. The music, I, you can't say it's scored because it's an actual song playing in the background. Um, mm-hmm. It's spectacular. I was jaw-dropped at the time, and actually rewatching it recently for this show, it just mesmerized me again. A decent portion of that plays silently, doesn't it? Like, when uh, when they're sort of building up the tension as they're just facing off. Uh, do, don't they play silently, and all you can hear is the water running at one point? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I'm just clarifying that. Um, just I, to I build think... up, not not during any of the actual fight. Yes. The moment she correct. steps outside in the snow garden, it goes silent, and yeah, you hear that. You hear the water fountain and and the thing, you know, yeah. bouncing on itself. And the moment it starts, they get ready to start fighting. Um, a song is being played. Yeah. Um, I think that that's probably up there for me. But I think directly before that is probably my favorite scene, uh, which is just her fighting the. Uh, the crazy 88 or the uh is that what they're crazy called 88 yeah jesus yeah. i'm so so tired right now <laughs> uh, the, the crazy 88 fight scene uh, especially her taking on gogo i uh i love i love those scenes as well because gogo i think is such an awesome minor character um with honorable mentions to the fight against orin hee and uh l driver nice uh update on the actress that played nikki her name is ambrosia kelly she hasn't acted since 2012. Anything we would know? No. <laughs> Didn't think so. No. So that brings us to my number one? Yes. All right. To the shock of no one. My this no- is the hateful eight, right? My number one is Pulp, <laughs> is pulp Fiction. Hey. Yes. Pulp Fiction is the movie that changed my life. It is, for me, either the most influential or the second most influential movie of my life. It's between this and The Last of the Mohicans. I originally only went and saw Pulp Fiction because at the time I was a Bruce Willis fan. And I would go see every one of his films. When I sat down in the theater and that music started... Well, it started with the scene with Pumpkin and Honey Bunny. I was just like, what the fuck am I watching? Music starts off. Pretty sure the song is called Miserloo. I'm just like, holy fuck. At the end of the movie, I went back to the ticket counter and bought another ticket and watched it again. I saw this movie eight times in the movie theater. This movie changed... This movie changed everything for me. And just like we mentioned earlier, it's the first time a movie had me riveted with dialogue, not action. There's not a lot of action in this movie. It's all dialogue. It's all character. It's all in these actors just fucking knocking it out of the park. I was blown away. I was... I'm sure there's other... Tons of other movies I had seen prior to watching Pulp Fiction that didn't tell their story chronologically, but this is the one that really accentuated it, and it blew my mind. Plus, with repeated viewings, there's little Easter eggs hidden throughout. Like in the opening scene, 
or Pumpkin and Honey Bunny are talking, you can hear Jules and Vincent talking. And Vincent walks past them in the background. When you know what to look for, you can see him. You can see him walking towards the bathroom when he goes on his bathroom break. When Bruce Willis is sneaking up to his apartment, he passes by an apartment and you can hear a commercial for Jackrabbit Slims playing on a TV. It's all these little touches that just add to this world and make it more realistic. And like I say, ad nauseum on almost every episode, it's the little things that matter. This movie is such a game changer. And one of, one of the things, and this is no dis- disrespect to you, Sam, but I'm, I'm sure you're aware of it, is that when people ask me what my favorite movie is and I tell them Pulp Fiction, and if they say, oh, I haven't seen it, I'm like, I don't think you're going to understand how good this movie is because this mm-hmm. changed cinema so much that this won't be the revelation that it was when I saw it in 1994. And um, that's not to disparage, it's not to say that people won't like it, but fuck, like, it, it forever changed cinema. And really threw Tarantino into the limelight and it's it's one of the greatest movies ever made the performances throughout there's not a weak point not a weak point at all and just absolutely standout performances especially Samuel L. Jackson as Jules Winfield him not winning best supporting actor that year broke my fucking heart as did, did um, Ed Wood, old man. Uh, he played the judge in Rounders. Martin Landau. Um, Martin Landau won for Ed Wood. I've only watched Ed Wood once because that's only how many times I could watch that movie. Uh, he was really good, but it, it absolutely tore me apart that uh, that. Samuel Jackson didn't win Best Supporting Actor for this. And the fact that this lost out to Forrest Gump for Best Picture. Which is something we'll be discussing not in the distant future. Yes. Indeed we will. And how did you feel out of curiosity? Would you have put say Travolta over Hanks for Best Actor as well? No. No? No. Tom Hanks as Forrest Gump is actually really good. But John Travolta as Vincent Vega was – it was so great to see John Travolta actually do something good again. Um, but I don't think I could give him best actor over – I probably, if I'm not mistaken, I would have probably given – I, I might give Morgan Freeman best actor over Tom Hanks for Shawshank. Probably. I mean, you're the, you're the expert on this year. I mean, I've obviously seen all these movies, but I'll trust you. Given how many times you've seen Pulp Fiction, Shawshank, I don't know. You've probably seen Forrest Gump a decent amount of times yeah, too. Yeah, definitely. I don't hate things. I don't hate Forrest Gump, but I just don't think I don't think it really. I don't think it's especially all these years later. It doesn't hold up to those two movies. Yeah, I'm just trying. I'm trying to find. Um, there was a movie that Quentin Tarantino referenced when he said there was nobody else he wanted. Uh, there, there was nobody else he wanted for this role other than John Travolta, and it was because of his performance in one movie. 
And midnight, I'm trying to... No, not Midnight Cowboy. Um, shit. I know that, I know that reference. Is it, uh, is it Blowout? Could be. No. I don't know. Um, but yeah, Pulp Fiction is, again, it's the movie that led me down to the path of where I am today. So there's, there's my six hour rant on Pulp Fiction. <laughs> I'd love no, to hear there's, your guys. There's I'd, more coming. You're not out of the woods yet. Oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I won't lie right now. For those of you that are all excited to hear me talk about Pulp Fiction, Manny's holding back because we oh. have, we, we're going to be having a very large deep dive into Pulp Fiction down the road. And I don't feel like, uh, I don't, I don't really want to repeat myself too much. Yeah, no, understandable. Um, I think personally for myself at Pulp Fiction, I uh, I put this at number three. You you are correct to an extent that I think since I didn't experience what this did to cinema, um, maybe it isn't as high as it possibly could be for me. Uh, still number three though. Uh, what is it now? Twenty five years after the fact. Yep, twenty five year uh, anniversary. Is uh, is perfectly all right in my book. Um, this the dialogue in this movie still holds up so well, and it's a good example of. I talked earlier about how uh, the violence in Tarantino's move, movies are not are not mindless. Uh, this is a good example of how the dialogue, even though Tarantino gets a lot of credit for his witty dialogue and uh, they kind of just talk about nonsense for a little bit and it's really funny and it's entertaining, it also is really effective in advancing plot and developing character. So, like, for example, what I think is the most famous scene in this movie or one of the more famous scenes in this movie is um, when... Uh, Vince and um, I can't I remember Samuel L. Jackson's Jules. character's name. Jules. Yeah, Vince and Jules are on their way to a hit, and they're talking about uh, a variety of different topics. They're talking about his trip to the Netherlands, uh, what they call uh, different McDonald's sandwiches in France. They're talking about TV pilots. They're talking about foot massages, and people kind of dismiss this. They're like, "Oh, it's just like a, a funny conversation. It's really entertaining," and it is. It is entertaining, but we learn a lot in this yes. conversation about what we need to know and you you as the viewer don't even know that the exposition is happening you're just learning these things like for example we learn that vince just got back for a trip from a trip we learn that jules uh potentially is looking to get away himself we learn that um marcellus wallace is not to be fucked with especially in regards to his wife those yep. two are very important facts for later when vince is potentially crossing some lines and uh, we, we, we learn a variety of other things. That's just off the top of my head. There's so much ex exposition to the audience that you don't even realize is happening in this conversation. But it is. And that is why the dialogue is so good. Not because it's funny. It is funny. But that's not why it's good. It's good because it's effective, in my opinion, mostly. I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Rachel. We've been doing a lot of talking. Do you have anything no, you want to jump in on here? <laughs> um... I would agree with everything that, that Manny has said when you know, I was talking earlier about this movie and Django actually went back and forth on my list, whether this would be number three or Django would. And it was the nostalgia and everything that Pulp Fiction was when it came out, depending on when it came out in 94, I would have been 13 or 14. It came out October so, 14th. October. So I would have, it would have been a month before my 14th birthday my parents growing up were pretty strict about what we watched for movies and Pulp Fiction was like that movie that I would hide under my bed and watch. And then it, it, when I first watched it, it would have been uh, probably a year or two later. 
and it was, you know, I was watching Train Spotting and the movie Kids, um, oh, kids, and going back and watching Clockwork Orange, and like you kind of sort of like I remember all those movies together as watching these big taboo movies that my parents would lose their shit over that I was watching, and I just remember Pulp Fiction just being a big part of that time in my life and changed the way I watched movies, changed the way I viewed what was happening in movies. And to this day, like when I hear that opening song, uh, I tried to learn it on the piano. It does not come out that good. <laughs> um, and But just that song, like when you hear it, you're instantly back there. Even I remember, fuck, like us thinking we're so cool and ordering Royale with cheese at McDonald's, like just trying to reference the movie and be cool and obviously we were not cool at all and just everything that Pulp Fiction was at that time and how many references and how many people were talking about it I also think it's like the pitch of this movie would have sounded insane at the time like there's no way to describe Pulp Fiction in a few sentences that isn't completely nuts either you undersell it and you're like it's about two guys protecting and going after a briefcase or you oversell it and you end up talking about the gimp. Like, I just think, I, you know, the pitch of this movie and what it would have been at that time, I, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall. <laughs> I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. And I actually I just kind of, again, doing a little bit of research for this movie, I didn't realize how cheaply they made this movie. What's the budget? $8 million. That's, not, that's pennies. Yeah. Even for 94. Yeah. And it made over two hundred and fifty. That's uh, that's honestly surprising that back then a movie of this uh, of this caliber would do that well. This I mean, this was a sensation, Sam. It was yeah. like the buzz on this movie was so spectacular. It like everybody was talking about it. Everybody was talking about this movie. It was it was such a joy to be a part of, and it was such a joy like that I just. Again, I only went because I was a Bruce Willis fan, and then to come out to have my life irrevocably, irre- irrevocably altered. Yeah, and I mean, on the note of Bruce Willis, I don't think he's the first one that anyone thinks of when they think of Pulp Fiction. Like, most people will defer to uh, Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta and talk about how good they are, and they, those people are correct. But I think Bruce Willis' storyline in this movie is a lot of fun, too. He has an awesome moment where um, when, when he discovers that uh, his girlfriend has left his watch behind and, like, there's been all this baby talk and he's, just, like, he's, <laughs> he's calling her baby all the time and it's, all, it's also, like, it's also romantic. And then the second that he discovers that his watch gone, watch is gone, he flips a switch and he, he goes off. And it does a really good job at portraying the importance of this watch yep. and why he needs to go back for it. And like it, it, all the events that are set into motion after that argument would be cheapened if you were just like, okay, it's like it's just a watch. Like, why does he have to care about it so much? But it's his performance that is then responsible for selling the fact that he would have to go back to his apartment and Vince dies, and then he runs into Marcellus Wallace after that, and they go through the whole thing in the pawn shop. Like that that moment is such an important linchpin of the movie. Yep, and it, it, it's easy to take for granted, like how easy would it would be to just phone in the performance there. But really, that's a really important moment to sell the plot of the movie going forward. 
totally agree. And I know that none of this is news to you, Manny. I know you could talk about this movie forever, and it's probably killing you to restrain yourself from just going out on a full rant right now. <laughs> it is. It is. But I, I, like I said, I don't want to repeat myself, so hmm. I'm saving it for the, the larger, more focused episode on Pulp Fiction. I, I got to get you going on one thing. Like, I'm just trying to rack my brain for what, like... What if I asked you what's in the briefcase? Would you uh, would you be able to give me a, a non a suitable non answer, or are you gonna try to refrain from answering that for right now? I'll refrain from answering that right now. <sighs> really thought that would get him, Rachel. I really did. <laughs> That's definitely uh, something I'd li- I, I'll do the deep dive on when we talk more in depth about Pulp sure. Fiction. There's there's some okay. great theories in in regards to that that I I love to uh, to follow through on. Uh, Rachel, is there anything else specific you wanted to touch on with this one? Um, no, not so much. I just had a little thing about Quentin Tarantino, like being, being the master storyteller that he is, and what I love about his, especially in Pulp Fiction. And you guys talked about the briefcase and not wanting to talk about, it, so I won't go there. But no, go ahead, story, go ahead, Rachel. There's always like great storytellers. There's never the answer. There's always different kinds of answers and i think R- that room, that's for, room for interpretation yeah and i think that's a, something tarantino does so well especially like with regards to the briefcase and what is it and all the theories and all that stuff and just in all of his movies that there's a lot of never giving the answer it could be a number of things the way reservoir dogs ends for example and what comes after that and all that and I'm just one thing that i really like about him mm-hmm. yeah i think uh i mean the 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 answer to what's in the suitcase uh, the the non-fun answer is it's not important uh, like it's 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 a macguffin it's, it's a macguffin the, yeah it's the, it's the thing that you know the that the main character needs that sets the plot in motion doesn't matter that being said i've seen some fun fan theories about what might or might not be inside the briefcase i'm sure manny has seen the same thing but yep. we're going to discuss that at a later date i guess about <laughs> preview for a future pulp fiction episode but uh yeah, I think the the briefcase is just one of the many nice touches in this movie that Tarantino just didn't focus. He, he focused on what's important and he didn't focus on what wasn't. doesn't matter what's in the briefcase. What's important is that these characters are interacting with each other in meaningful ways and they interact with each other in meaningful ways. I, I, I love, I really do love this movie from start to finish. All these movies on my list, I really do love from start to finish. Tarantino's um, a master. He is. He really is. And we're splitting hairs, honestly, to, to separate these movies into into a hierarchy. But, yeah, I, I can't fault anyone for putting this at number one, least of all the guy who's been telling me since I met him how important Pulp, pulp Fiction is and <laughs> won't shut the fuck up about it. <laughs> um, favorite scene? I, I, obviously, I have a shit ton of trivia. Yeah, sure, sure. Not sharing it on this episode. Right, you're planning way down the line. We're we're what at 1999 right now for our Oscar movies. Uh, yes, that's coming up next. Yeah. Yeah. So you're you're planning ahead to 1994 already. I dig it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> All right, uh, Rachel. I guess uh, we'll start on you for favorite scene. Uh, I would say my favorite scene is is Uma's overdose scene. Oh. Just what that scene was at that time, and. You know, he, I, I have read a little bit of trivia about that scene as well and how they shot it. But that scene, like, I I remember watching that scene. And again, when you're in watching, like, Train Spotting and all those movies kind of around the same time. But what it meant to, like, see that happen, her acting in it, John Travolta's acting in it, the, the whole scene. That would be my, my pick. Oh, cool. excellent pick. 
My favorite scene is the one that every time I watch it gives me chills, and that's um, Jules Winfield explaining Ezekiel twenty five seventeen to Pumpkin. He, you're looking at Samuel Jackson with that wickedly intense stare as he's pointing a gun right at you and he starts talking about why he uses that phrase from the Bible but then he starts to break it down and it gives me chills it's an acting tour de force by Samuel Jackson at the height of his game and again I, I really wish he had been rewarded with an Oscar statue for this role but they felt that uh, Martin Landau was a little bit better so whatever yeah, I, I think I would. Uh, I, I'm gonna have to go with the same scene. the The delivery of the line um, in the final scene in the diner is the one they're talking about, right? When he's explaining the Bible verse. Yep. Um, the delivery of the line. I'm the shepherd. I'm well, that, but when he says, "I'm trying, Ringo. Oh. I'm trying. I'm trying real hard to be the shepherd." That oh. I don't know. I don't know. That, I'm seriously getting goosebumps right now, even so saying that line. For some reason, that line just affects me. He just he has a really good desperation in his voice. I'm trying, Ringo. I'm trying real hard to be the shepherd. And man, that that whole scene is uh, is really really good from front to back. Oh yeah, that's yeah. I, fuck, I love you. Yes. All right, we're down to the last one. God, I should have I should have said I should go first. I'm, man, I don't know if I'll have the brain power to talk about this movie anymore. <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have it. I'm too excited. Too excited, Sam. The people are waiting. They're waiting to hear about Jackie Brown. They're no. waiting to hear what your number one Quentin Tarantino film is. Rachel, Manny, you guys have waited all episode to find out what the hell could it be. What could my number one be? Well, in a shock and the twist. It is Inglorious Bastards. No! 2009. <laughs> no. Yeah. Got you guys so fooled. Yeah, anyone who's listened to the show or has even talked to me about movies in my personal life, anybody who knows me knows that this is probably, it's my favorite Tarantino movie, and frankly, it's not close. Uh, but it's also just, like, pro it's my favorite movie. It really is. It. I adore this movie so much. This, is, so your much this like is your number one, Sam? Like, this is your number one. I think it's certainly up there, but I, I think it is my favorite movie. That's I think it fucking is. awesome. Yeah, I adore this movie. So many things about it work on so many different levels. I could nerd out about this movie forever. And unlike Pulp Fiction, we do not have an episode coming up about this one. So excuse <laughs> me while I put on my nerd hat a little bit. And we're going to talk some Inglorious Bastards. Is that all right? Perfect. Yes. Um, this movie has some of my favorite scenes ever. I have not written down a favorite scene for myself for this one, nor do I think I'll be able to come up with one in the course of this discussion, because, um, well, let, let's just get into it. The opening scene of this movie is uh, one of the greatest conversations ever put to film, in my opinion. Uh, it is masterfully done. Uh, it, it's uh, we, we open on Christoph Waltz opening the or, uh, excuse me, uh, visiting the farm of a French dairy farmer, uh, and we find out through various points of this conversation why the heck he is there, and this scene is a masterclass in how to write a tension-filled conversation. Um, so, I think the, the order in which information is revealed to the audience in this scene is really important. So, we see Christoph Waltz arrive, 
we see he's dressed in his German uniform, and uh, we see Pierre Lapidite, the farmer, really, really nervous. Um, and, and that's all the information we need to know off the bat to know that this guy is not to be fucked with. Um, and then we find out a little bit later his nickname, the Jew Hunter, uh, and that just keeps the tension going. We can sort of surmise why it is that he's there from that. And then the final bit of information that really, like, once the scene starts to ebb in tension just a little bit, the camera pans below the floorboards and reveals that uh, Mr. Lapidite is harboring uh, Jewish uh, enemies of the state, as Christoph Waltz puts it. The construction of this scene uh, just makes me go gaga as a film nerd. I, I cannot express to you how much I love this scene or how many times I have watched this scene. Uh, it is one of my favorite conversations uh, ever in a movie. One of my favorite scenes ever in a movie. Um, I need somebody else to talk so I can take a drink of water. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Rich. Uh, I would agree. The The opening scene is definitely up there and might be my favorite scene as well. We'll find out. Uh, the way... The, the way the conversation goes, the, the bit about the rats and squirrels is mm. perfection. Um, and, and what he means by the asking for Mel, how polite he is, but you know he's just so evil. Um, it's a great scene. And the Inglorious Bastards is like such a, it's such a good movie. And mm. I think this one for dialogue is one of my favorites of Quentin Tarantino. I, I was a little surprised that it wasn't higher on my list after some rewatches, but I would say watching all of the interrogation scenes for me in this movie and Christoph Waltz is, was my favorite thing about this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, Christoph Waltz is, is the highlight of this movie. There's no doubt about that. Manny and I did an episode a while back on our top five movie villains. And I believe Christoph Waltz's uh, Colonel Hans Landa came in at number one for me. Uh, if I recall, the, I, I can't remember if it was him at number one and then Joker at number two or the other order around, but um, they were definitely both uh, one, two. I it think it wasn't bats. I remember that. <laughs> you just said it, it wasn't bats. God. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> Reference to one of my most embarrassing moments ever on the podcast. That's good. <laughs> well, you called me. You, you outed me as a liar earlier. So. I did. Yeah, no, that's, that's fair. It's, no, it, that's a little bit of revenge. <laughs> Tarantino would be proud of that bit of revenge right there. <laughs> um, man, do you have anything to say before I go on further? No, I want you to keep going. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I think on the note of Christoph Waltz's performance, um, if, we're, if we're still on the opening scene, I promise I'll move on to other scenes and I won't take the length of the movie to, to talk about it. But um, I think... I talked about this when uh, we discussed Colonel Landa uh, in the villains episode, but one of the ways that he's set up so effectively as a villain, uh, you're right, Rachel, that he's so polite in this scene. It doesn't really make sense for him to be menacing at the same time, but the reason for that is because Tarantino does a really good job with his villains setting up reputation. So uh, Landa does a good job of directing the conversation where he wants it to go. They get on the topic of his nickname, and uh, his nickname is the Jew Hunter, and uh, we find out that this, this guy's one bad motherfucker. And uh, even though he's polite, he's asking to smoke his pipe. He's asking to switch to English. He, he's slowly, uh, you know, removing the facade. And we know what he's capable of, both because of his uniform and because of his nickname. So I think that's one of the many ways that 
he's set up as an effective villain. And then, of course, when we see him in action, uh, you know, shooting uh, Jews through floorboards, uh, that's only reinforced. So uh, Colonel Landa, one of my favorite uh, movie characters ever, uh, performs in one of my favorite scenes ever. Side note, Manny, I don't know if you have any info on this for me at all, but uh, the farmer uh, who he's uh, opposite in this opening scene, do you happen to know anything about him? Because I have not looked up like if he's done anything or if he's in any other movies at all, really, but he does an excellent job, too. Uh, <clears throat> taking a look at uh, his filmography here, he was in that Assassin's Creed movie. Uh, and I'm not seeing anything else that I recognize too much. He was in Robin Hood. That must have been the Russell Crowe one. And I'd have to double check. Uh, otherwise, he's like obviously a, a French actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking back here, yeah, I only recognize um, that Robin Hood uh, film. Um, which is a film I surprisingly enjoyed. And, uh, yeah, the rest of this appears to be a lot of French, couple TV things, but, yeah, I, I don't uh, I don't see anything else, really. He's, uh, he's spectacular in that opening scene um, as Pierre Lapidite. Um, there's nothing but spectacularness throughout the film. Yes. Again, like most of Tarantino's films, there's nobody that's really weak. I guess the only, the weakest part for me is uh, Eli Roth as uh, as the Bear Jew. Uh, I don't mind him in it, but it definitely definitely could have used somebody a little bit stronger. I I like Eli Roth solely as uh, comedic relief. I don't know if you felt attacked by the uh, very thick Boston accent you put on Manny, <laughs> <laughs> but you, you had you had to have loved uh, the Teddy Williams reference. Oh, eh? I fucking love the Teddy Williams Teddy uh, Ball Game. Yeah. Fenway Park's on its fucking feet for Teddy fucking Ball Game. Yep, yeah, that's that's a that's a really good scene as well. Question um, for you though. Yeah. Do you know who that was originally offered that role? I do not. <laughs> you uh, would wait. Is it Bostonian? No, I don't think he's from Boston. Okay. I, hold on. I'll check for you. But I, I, there is no way you would ever be able to guess. Okay, then I won't even guess. Hold on. I would have said, like, Mark Wahlberg or something. Nope. <laughs> uh, let's see. Oh, no. This gentleman was actually born in Brooklyn, New York. Ooh. Okay. Uh, let's see if I could. Okay, well, here's a hint. He's an actor that I do not like. Actor that you do not like from Brooklyn, New York. Yeah, the Brooklyn, New York is the, the Brooklyn, New York is not a big hint. I don't think anybody really knows. He is uh, a, a he is a, com- a comedic actor who I hate. Rarely he's done a movie I enjoy. It's not like it's not like James Franco or something, is it? Nope. Um, okay, well then, I can't think of any other clues that yeah. aren't going to completely give it away. Because, so, I mean, because Will Ferrell was born in Irvine, California, as far as I know. So. You're on, keep thinking along those lines. I don't know, is it like Adam Sandler? It is Adam Sandler. There you go. <laughs> well, he's like, the, the New York thing is totally relevant, he's a New York Jew. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I am. Uh, I could not be happier that he was not cast. Side note, different comedic actor in this movie, to, who I maintain has the weirdest cameo of all time, and that would be Mike Myers. Yeah. So every time Mike Myers pops up in this movie, it still surprises me. Even like in the context of where he was in his career, because this movie came yeah, out yeah. 2009. Uh, I think the last project he had done before this was like The Love Guru, which was like three or four years prior. Ugh. And then before that, he did uh, Cat in the Hat. And then he just randomly pops up in one scene in a Tarantino movie as a British general. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, did, I didn't mind him. He was fine. <laughs> I, I, I think more for me, it, it's not even about the performance for Mike Myers for me. It's about the fact that he's there. It's just so weird to me. I, I kind of love it. I agree. Yeah. This movie's just so much fun to watch. And mm-hmm. the revisionist history that Tarantino plays with, because obviously, spoiler, this isn't how Hitler's obviously killed in real life. And that was one of the things I loved. I remember watching this for the first time, and when they actually killed Hitler, I was like, what the fuck? I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> um, Brad Pitt having the time of his life. With his thick Tennessee accent. So thick, so much fun. Um... It's just an absolute joy of a movie to watch. And um, I agree. Hans Londo, one of the best characters to grace our screens in a long time. Um, I've already talked about how amazing Christoph Waltz is with Tarantino Dialogue. This was uh, my introduction to Christoph Waltz. Never heard of him before. And I was astounded at what was on screen. His, Hans Landa is absolutely a fucking joy to watch. Every scene he's in is just a highlight. And the way that Christoph Waltz bounces between the languages, the way that he his expressions on his face, he's so animated but not in an over-the-top way. He makes it all seem so real. He is He's just a fucking cinematic pleasure. You're not going to get any disagreement here. Yeah. Um, uh. The. Uh, yeah, I, I don't really have much else to touch on. I do have, again, a lot of trivia, but we could break down this movie more. I'm fine either I mean, way. I, I've got fucking lots more. Fucking keep got, going. I, I spend I spend a sad amount of time thinking about this movie. Like it's <laughs> it's uh it's really up there for me. Um I, I don't think I'm gonna break down any of the other scenes like I did the opening just because I'll be largely repeating myself. It's the same sort of formula where he ratchets up the tension just at the right amount of time. Um so off the top of my head, the uh the diner scene between uh Christoph Waltz and Shoshana. Yep. Um where uh he he orders her a glass of milk that might be one of the most menacing moments I've ever seen in a movie, even though he's being perfectly polite while doing it. Um, uh, I have a note on that, actually. Okay, sure. Uh, Landa's choice of food for Shoshana is symbolic and another way to test the girl and play psychological games with her. The glass of milk is a callback to Lapidite's farm where Landa drank milk and Shoshana's family died. As for strudel, during World War II, it would likely have been made with pork lard, which is not kosher and therefore not allowed by Jewish dietary laws. <sighs> I didn't. I didn't know the thing about the strudel. <laughs> That's so cool. There I you love go. That. 
Um, I mean, there, there's a lot on Landa that I could say. Um, I, I thought, I, I think a lot about like why he ordered her the milk because it's sort of hinted in that moment that he knows who she is. Um, and I, I've kind of thought a lot about that. I think it just comes down to the fact that he is such a good detective and his instinct has just his instinct is so well honed. I don't know if uh, you have any anything on that, Manny. I agree. I just think he's. I don't. I don't think it was a, like a callback to La, the Lapardite's uh, farm, but I think it's his his razor sharp intellect and his instincts that are guiding him along in this scene. Um, mm-hmm. I do. I didn't know anything about the strudel until I did the research. So knowing that now just kind of really just kind of backs up with everything we just said. It's such a yeah. small, easy thing. You know, they're, they finish their meal. It is time for dessert. And knowing that if she doesn't eat it, it's a definite possibility that she is a Jew. It's just absolute brilliance. Um, before we go any further, Rachel, do you have anything you want to add? I'm, I'm- Feel like I'm, uh, I'm I'm taking over the conversation here, and I want this want this to continue to be a conversation. No, I I'm just sitting over here nodding my head in agreement <laughs> with everything you guys are saying. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, I agree with all of it. Um, one scene that I really did like was the when he says bingo. That's a bingo. <laughs> no, like, you just say bingo, but yep. it's like such an another interrogation that. Uh, is intense but then he drops in this funny line same with the interrogation of Bridget at the movie theater I really really like that scene Any anything that Chris like Manny uh, this was my first introduction to him I, I actually think it was his first American movie mm-hmm. um, I think you're correct about that actually and, uh, and and same thing like fell in love with him instantly he's just so good like you could have just done more interrogation scenes and this movie would still be so high up there yeah the the only other scene with him that we haven't really touched on uh by by the way i just love yeah the bingo scene uh i I like how he's obsessed with like american phrases Mm -hmm. yeah he, he says uh what's that american expression if the shoe fits you must wear it at one point and then he also says, uh, what's that expression about shoes and feet? Uh, looks like the shoes on the other foot. Or like he, He's just kind of obsessed with American expressions for some reason. And it's just never really talked about, but I like it. <laughs> Me too. I think it's so great. And, and Brad Pitt too. I love it when Brad is the Italian and he just like can't be bothered. And he's saying things like, correcto. And <laughs> he doesn't even speak Italian. He says C at first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he just, like, doesn't really care or seem to care about hiding who he is or anything. He's just like, whatever. <laughs> yeah, he can't be bothered to even put on an Italian accent. Yeah. Gorlami. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's probably the last scene we haven't really talked about with Christoph Waltz in it is the scene where he's just fucking toying with them. He knows that they're not Italian, but he's, like, insisting that they repeat their names so they can get the pronunciation correct. And he's just he's just having the time of his life. Um, that's another kind of moment. I mentioned the um, the milk when he uh, when he uh, orders Emmanuel the glass of milk. That's like an oh shit sort of moment. Like he's onto them. The moment that he starts speaking Italian, my stomach dropped. And I think the first time I watched this movie, I laughed out loud and went, "These guys are so fucked." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just so unbelievably fucked over in that moment. Um, 
last scene I'm just going to talk about briefly is um, the bar scene with Michael Fassbender and uh, Hugo Stieglitz, and I can't remember the uh, Wilhelm Vicky, I think is the last soldier's name. Um, that scene is another one that just ebbs and flows so nicely. Uh, Tarantino ratchets up the pressure uh, at the exact right moments um, with the with the drunkard uh, discovering uh, Fassbender's accent isn't quite right. Um, and then the German uh, the German officer showing up as well and also becoming suspicious. And then uh, finally it being capped off with them ordering three whiskeys or rather ordering. Uh, um, the listeners won't be able to see this, but I'm holding up three fingers the American way and then three fingers the German way. Um, you know, there's so much about this movie that's to like those those scenes that I've mentioned already are some of some of my favorite scenes in any movie. Like they're all so good. I don't know if I'm going to be able to pick between them for, for favorite scene later. Uh, Michael Fassbender has said repeatedly that still to this day people come up to him and and do the three. <laughs> <laughs> I I would probably follow suit if I ever met that man in real life. Yeah. Um. La- last thing I uh, there's only really one thing I want to touch on with Inglorious Bastards. Uh. After this, and that is the ending. We we touched on it a little bit with Hitler ending, uh, with Hitler being killed in the ending rather. Um. I think the ending for this movie is another one of those moments that's kind of just mindlessly tossed into the gratuitous violence category like the, the theater burns down hitler gets shot in the face about a hundred thousand times you know everyone's happy you just get to watch a bunch of nazis be killed it's great but i think what there, there's some elements of the ending that i think are really overlooked um for example like they're sitting in the theater watching the movie nation's pride and the entire german audience is rooting all these Americans getting mindlessly killed, and they're all applauding, and Hitler's laughing, and Goebbels is is laughing, and the movie that they're watching appears to not be very good, right? It just appears to be a bunch of shots of Americans getting killed. But then, minutes later, you, the audience member, are laughing at all these innocent German people in the audience getting shot and burned and blown up, and it's sort of a wink to the audience, I think, from Tarantino, like kind of pointing out hypocrisy a little bit. Uh, I, I've always kind of liked that. And it's really subtle. It doesn't really draw attention to itself, especially because it's difficult to pay attention to anything like that when people are on fire and running around and stuff. But I, I just I think the ending is a little bit smarter than people give it credit for, and uh, people don't really talk about that. Fair enough. Would you like a little trivia note on the, uh, on the film? A na- is it called A Nation's Pride? I, I, I would love a little little note on that. The film within the film, A Nation's Pride, was actually, all of that was shot by Eli Roth. You know, I had heard that before, actually. Was, uh, Eli Roth is a director himself. I've not watched any of his movies because they're mostly horror. But, yeah, same uh, here. I don't think I've seen any of his movies, actually, now that I think about it. He's famous for the Hostel series, if I recall. Yeah. Oh, I've seen those. Yeah, the, the Bear Jew uh, directs yeah. those movies. Oh. Uh, Cabin Fever, Hostel, Hostel 2, The Green Inferno, Death Wish. Oh, well, his last film was actually a family film. Really? The House with the Clock in Its Walls. Oh, Eli Roth directed that? (laughs) Yeah. Weird. I never saw it, obviously. (laughs) That's so strange. I, I do like um, Eli Roth in this movie. You mentioned you didn't like him too much, but... Uh, I didn't hate him. I just... Yeah, just didn't stand out. I I, I mean, I, I can see that, like, in 
in the shadow of Brad Pitt and Christoph Waltz, uh, you know, maybe maybe he doesn't shine quite as much. But I do. He's another good example. We talked about how, or I talked about, because I've been the only one fucking talking. Um, <laughs> we, I talked about how uh, Hans Landa's character is set up really well in the sense that his reputation uh, is is really really strong and really really uh, menacing. Um, we hear a lot about the bear Jew from a lot of different people before we see him on on screen, and I, I like that. Uh, we hear Hitler talking about him and how he could potentially be a golem, uh, <laughs> and uh, and then we hear uh, Brad Pitt and the soldier that he's threatening to beat to death uh, talking about the bear Jew as well. So that's another good instance of uh, a character being introduced by reputation being pretty effective. Yep, which I know you're a big fan of. Yes. All right, that's it. I'm done. That's, that's all I got. I've exhausted my notes, basically. Rach, anything you'd like to touch on before I uh, slather us in some trivia? Uh, no, I think I'm good. All right. Are you ready? I was born ready, Manny. All right, here we go. Quentin uh, Tarantino was considering abandoning the film while the casting search for someone to play Colonel Hans Landa took place, fearing he'd written a role that was unplayable. After Christoph Waltz auditioned, however, both Tarantino and producer Lawrence Bender agreed they had found the perfect actor for the role. In a roundtable discussion with Brad Pitt and Quentin Tarantino, Tarantino said that Till Schwiger, who played uh, Hugo Stiglitz, um, being born and raised in Germany, had always refused to put on a Nazi uniform for a film role. The only reason he agreed to for this film was because he got to kill Nazis. Uh, oh, I think you'll love this, Sam. Because you can speak German, right? Yeah, a little bit. Okay. Michael Fassbender's performance as Lieutenant, Lieutenant Archie Hilcox is layered with irony. Fassbender was born in Germany to German and Irish parents and raised in Ireland. Now residing in London with fluency in German as his first language and English as his second and a mastery of English accents and dialects. Here he plays an Englishman who goes undercover as a German and who can speak German fluently, but has difficulty hiding his accent. In the basement bar scene, German-born Fassbender, who speaks German fluently, did affect an unusual accent. The affectation including mispronouncing certain sounds and not speaking in the proper rhythm. I do like, I've kind of been curious about that as... I mean, I I do speak a little bit of German, but I'm not familiar enough with it to uh, to to identify accents and things like that. So I've always sort of wondered how he would sound to a to a native speaker. That, that's interesting. Uh, this was the only movie Brad Pitt made as a leading actor for the Weinstein Company or its previous iteration, Miramax. He has said it had everything to do with wanting to work with Quentin Tarantino and nothing to do with Harvey Weinstein. His animosity for Weinstein stems from an incident in the 90s where Pitt physically threatened the producer upon learning of Weinstein's unwanted sexual harassment of his then-girlfriend, Gwyneth Paltrow. Friend of the show, Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, right? Um, (laughs) Here's something that I know you would love, that if this had occurred, Sam, this movie would not be on your number one list. Okay. Are you ready for casting what-ifs? Oh, God, I don't like this. Yep. An early iteration of the project had these people in the roles. <sighs> Sylvester Stallone as Aldo Rain. Yikes. Bruce, nope. <laughs> Bruce Willis as Donnie Donowitz. 
Don't hate that. And Arnold Schwarzenegger as Hugo Stiglitz. So they were going to make the Expendables, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been terrible. Don't, don't, don't love that. All right. Here's something you I know that you probably like. Uh, Daniel Bruhl, who played uh, Frederick Zoller, uh, admitted after the film was released that he wasn't perfectly fluent in French at the time of his casting. And when Quentin Tarantino asked him to speak lines in French to hear what it sounded like, he would sometimes bluff by mixing French with Spanish, betting, correctly, that Tarantino wouldn't notice. When Bruhl <laughs> received the translated version of the script, he was able to perfect his French delivery. That's so beautiful. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I do love, we didn't really talk about their storyline, but I, I think if there is a weaker point in the movie, that's probably it. That being said, I, uh, I like uh, Frederick Stoller as a character. I love, uh, I just love everything about this movie, obviously. All right, this is a little dark, but here we go. Uh, In the scene where Bridget von Hammersmark was choked to death after being discovered as a spy, Diane Kruger was almost accidentally really choked. Quentin Tarantino was unimpressed with choking scenes in other movies in that actors are rarely in any considerable danger while shooting them and convinced Kruger to be strangled for real. In order to get the scene just right. Fearing that Christoph Waltz would choke her too much or too little, Tarantino decided to literally take matter into his own hands and did the scene himself. In an interview, Tarantino said, What I said to her was, I'm gonna just strangle you, alright? Full on. I'm gonna cut off your air for just a little bit of time. We're gonna see the reaction in your face and I'm gonna yell cut. Kruger decided this was reasonable and let Tarantino sit on top of her and choke her to the point of unconsciousness. Fortunately for Kruger, the shot was accomplished in one take. Holy shit, man. Wow. <laughs> <sighs> this, you know, I, I want to say that my love for Tarantino doesn't necessarily extend to him as a person. Because... <laughs> There's a similar story, actually, that we didn't talk about. I think it was on the set of Kill Bill, where he was... Or whichever movie it is, I think Uma Thurman has somebody spit on her face at some point. Yep, that's Kill Bill. Yeah, it's Kill Bill. Tarantino is the one spitting on her. He he did not like the way that the spit looked, whoever did it, so he like he did it himself. Like, this, he's, yeah. he's, he's eccentric. Let's put it... That's the nicest way I can possibly put it. Also, the fact that almost all of his movies have some shot of women's feet in it is yeah. He's got a foot fetish. Yeah, Yeah. kind of strange. If you watch Death Proof, there's a whole foot fetish scene. The man's got some demons. Yeah, (laughs) but he makes really good movies. He really, really does. So, we're at your scared part, Sam. Favorite scene? I'm I'm just gonna go with the opening since I'm not gonna be able to pick. I'm the opening scene. I already ranted about sufficiently. So, uh, yeah, the scene, at, the scene at the bar. Or, sorry, a uh, scene at the farm. On right. the bar. Jesus. Rach? Uh, mine is the same. The opening scene is definitely my favorite scene. Uh, little shout-out. I love that they're playing pure, bits of Pure Elise by Beethoven in there. That song uh, was one of my biggest feats when I learned how to play the piano. So, love that. But, yeah, the opening farm scene is definitely my favorite scene. Also played in Django Unchained, right? After uh, after the dinner, uh, between the between the dinner where Christoph Waltz uh, pays t- or pays uh, yeah. Calvin and uh, the, the harpist is playing it, I guess right right before he gets killed. Ah, uh, and see, I only watched rewatched half of Django. Oh yes, <laughs> no, 
uh, Fear Elise is uh, is playing in the latter half of that movie too. Love it. <laughs> Fucking band nerds. And actually, uh, here's here's another little nerdy fact. Fear Elise actually hadn't been written at that time. Uh, yeah. After the American Civil War, but uh, but yeah, Tarantino threw in the movie anyway. I think there was another tidbit about that for Django too. Is there a scene where does Leonardo DiCaprio put on sunglasses in a scene? Yeah. And, and those also would not have been made by back then. <laughs> I mean, Samuel L. Jackson also calls a bunch of people motherfucker, and I don't pretty sure motherfucker was important <laughs> at that point, but that's okay. We will forgive Bloody it. Bloody hairs, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, uh, Manny, uh, I don't believe we've gotten to your favorite scene. Uh, it's the underground bar scene by far. Yeah. By far. That's one of the I- most tension-filled scenes I've ever been a part of. Yeah, I cannot fault you for anything on that. Yeah. Um... That wraps up our top five Tarantino, and we weren't far off on the length. This is far and away the longest episode we've ever had on the Samuel wow, Manuel. What are we at? We're, well, we kind of screwed up on the timing, but we're going to crack over three hours. Yeah, that uh, sounds about right, and I'm feeling the effects. I had a coffee before this because I knew we were going to go along, but I am exhausted. Yeah. Yeah, three people doing a top five list, even though we had lots of crossover. I knew it was going to take some time. <laughs> and and the Lion King to boot. Yeah, and my <laughs> rant on the Lion King and casts. And so uh, that being said, Rachel, I would love to extend a very huge thank you for joining us. I can't believe you toughed it out for the full three hours. Yeah. <laughs> had, uh, thank you so much. This almost counts as like two episodes. So you're like no longer in the two time club. You're almost in the three time club. Three time. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, guys. Sorry about some of that audio. Hey, uh, all good. Yeah, I really enjoyed being on again. Love chatting with you guys. Oh, we love having you. It's like I said, it's an open door policy. We want you back soon. Yeah, you, you really, really held your own and even managed to get a couple words in edgewise, even with me and Manny ranting as we tend to. So yeah, g- good job to you. Uh, thanks, guys. Yeah, great job, Rach. We absolutely love having you on. And like I said, we're really looking forward to your next appearance. So you can take a look over the schedule, see where you want to jump back in, and we'll, uh, we'll definitely see you again. Yeah, sounds good. Awesome. So before we take off, I guess I better do social media because I forgot to do the top of the show. If We would love it if you would like and follow us on uh, Instagram and Twitter at Sam underscore Manny underscore movie. You can follow us on Facebook at the Samuel Manuel Movie Podcast. You can contact us uh, through email at sammanymoviepodcast at gmail.com. I think that's everything. Uh, Sam, our, uh, let's uh, say our goodbyes. for the. Oh, uh, uh, do we preview uh, for next week? Oh, shit. Sure didn't. Yeah. Uh, next week, we will be reviewing Quentin Tarantino's ninth film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen a Tarantino movie, so I figure I'll go uh, go later this week. Go check it out. Yeah, I figured I could use uh, something different than what I've been watching recently. So, <laughs> so for the Samuel and Manuel movie podcast, I'm Manny Manuel. I think this just might be our masterpiece. I'm Sam Reimer. Adios! <laughs>